This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. In case you missed it, the annual Turning Point USA Summit took place over the course of the weekend and it featured conservative superstars such as uh, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and even... Donald Trump himself. Yes, very exciting. Now, there were a lot of different conservatives who showed up to support this. Libertarians, tradcons, you know, more far-right individuals, but most notably among the conservatives who showed up to support this event were Nazis. Literal Nazis with swastika flags and everything. They also had pro-DeSantis flags, which is really interesting. One of them had a sign with DeSantis's face on it. So yeah, it tells you a lot about DeSantis. They were yelling racial slurs at hecklers. And at the time that I record this video, DeSantis still hasn't condemned his Nazi supporters, which is weird because you'd think that somebody who's definitely not a fascist would speak out immediately and condemn them unequivocally. But we still haven't heard from DeSantis. Perhaps you'll hear something by the time this video goes up. But, you know, it's interesting that Nazis were drawn to a mainstream GOP event. Maybe that tells you just a little bit about the modern GOP party. But we're not going to talk about those fascists because I want to focus on one particular fascist who spoke at this event, namely Matt Gates. Now, he decided to give an argument against abortion in favor of banning abortion, to be clear. And it was very... Um, intelligence we'll say that facetiously but take a look at what he had to say you watched these pro-abortion pro-murder rallies the people are just disgusting like why is it that the women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions nobody wants to impregnate you if you look like a thumb these people are odious on the inside and out. They're like 5'2", 350 pounds, and they're like, give me my abortions or I'll get up and march and protest. And I'm thinking, march? You look like you got ankles weaker than the legal reasoning behind Roe versus Wade. A few of them need to get up and march. They need to get up and march for like an hour a day, swing those arms, get the blood pumping, maybe mix in a salad. I just want to remind you, that's a sitting member of Congress making an argument for banning abortion on the basis of whether or not abortion activists are attractive or not. Not citing data, statistics, nothing. I mean, this is why the country is in such bad shape, because so many people like that hold power. I mean, Matt Gates is a terrible individual, but he's a microcosm of a broader issue. Many Republicans are as vicious and disgusting as Matt Gates, And until all of these people are kicked out of office, then our country will continue to circle the drain. Now, first of all, it's bizarre because he used to be overweight himself. So for him to attack overweight people and to suggest that we shouldn't take the policy desires of overweight people seriously is really stupid. Um, and second of all, just imagine if a leftist made this argument. 
I don't think any leftist would support this. Imagine if Bernie Sanders said, we shouldn't have Medicare for all because fat people like Medicare for all. It'd be an incredibly idiotic argument, but we wouldn't have to talk about the aesthetic of the supporters of particular policies. We wouldn't have to talk about, you know, their body type or how they dressed because we support this policy based on data, based on studies, based on facts. But because conservatives have nothing, he decides to pretend to be a stand-up comedian and claims that, like, overweight people support abortion, so we shouldn't worry about it. I mean, it's not just overweight people. The overwhelming majority of America supports abortion. And this is such a bizarre argument because there are overweight people on the left and the right. So you're being a dick and alienating more people than you need to. But this is just who Matt Gates is. His career is dying. Nobody takes him seriously. So that's why he resorts to things like this. Desperate attempts to, you know, grab headlines. Now, following these disgusting comments, far-right news outlet Newsmax reported on what he said, saying Florida Representative Matt Gates blasted abortion activists in a rant sure to raise the dander of his political opponents. Now, Matt Gates then responded to that particular tweet by taking the profile picture of a 19-year-old abortion rights activist named Olivia Juliana and tweeted, dander raised to his 1.4 million Twitter followers. Now, before I show you her response, just pause for a moment. This is a sitting member of Congress. Again, like we have to reiterate that point because it's important. Doing targeted harassment of a 19-year-old activist so he can, I guess, prove his point that some people who are in favor of reproductive rights are overweight. There are skinny people, fat people, medium-sized people, people of all stripes who support reproductive rights because most Americans, contrary to what Matt Gates would uh, have you believe they're not monsters. They support abortion rights because it's the right thing to do. But he's basically telling all of his 1.4 million Twitter followers, go attack this person, go harass them because they're overweight. Uh, overweight. It's so disgusting. Again, targeted harassment by a sitting member of Congress. This is where we're at in the United States of America. But thankfully, um, this attack actually blew up in his face because what I had initially feared was that a lot of his gross little fascist followers would attack uh, Olivia. But instead, most people rallied with her and the rebuttal that she came back with was just brutal. So she wrote in response, am I not a little too old for you, Matt? I know you have a thing for targeting teenagers, but 19 is on the cusp, don't you think? Now, she also uh, said, my rule is, if you're going to attack me for my looks, you better be hotter than me. And to be blunt, Matt Gates is one of the ugliest things to crawl out of the pits of Florida. Now, she also replied to his original post with her original tweet, adding, I'm sorry you're 5'7". God damn, absolutely brutal, but 100% warranted. Now, he has 10 times the followers that she does, but yet she ratioed him into oblivion. His original tweet where he attacked her got 1,200 likes, whereas hers got 34,000 likes. And every one of these tweets that she made got more likes than his. So even Matt Gates's own followers presumably saw that tweet and they thought, this is just kind of gross. Or perhaps they thought, okay, maybe I agree with you, but at the same time, this isn't the best way to make our pro-life arguments. Yeah, that's Matt Gates. Now, it's worth noting that she referenced the investigation of Matt Gates, and I think that um, 
it's worthwhile to kind of go over that to give you a recap on what Matt Gates is being investigated for by the FBI. For the breakdown, we go to Newsweek, who explains the federal investigation into Gates was reportedly opened in the final months of the Donald Trump administration as a result of a previous investigation into a political ally of the Florida congressman, Joel Greenberg, who pleaded guilty to sex trafficking. Over a year later, investigators are still trying to determine whether Gates had sexual relations with an underage girl and paid for her to travel with him across states considered sex trafficking under federal law. Only a few details of the investigation have been leaked so far. Gates has not been charged with any crime. The Washington Post reported that Gates used to set up dates with women in exchange for dinner or hotel stays, something that could be illegal if there was a clear exchange of money for sex. The newspaper also reported that Greenberg wrote a letter directly accusing Gates of paying for sex with women. The Daily Beast reported that Gates transferred money to the equivalent of $900 to Greenberg on Venmo, saying hit up blank using a nickname for the 17 year old. So that's what Olivia was referring to. So, you know, if Matt Gates wants to talk about odious people, I can't think of anyone more odious than an adult who allegedly preys on 17 year old children. That is as gross and morally reprehensible as you can be. But Matt Gates is lowering the bar even further, I guess. I don't even know what he's trying to do here because even Republicans seemingly aren't enjoying what he's saying because it's just it's a bad argument it's an objectively bad argument if you are a forced birther i mean this isn't the case you want to make don't you want to kind of focus on protecting life i mean sure that argument is bullshit but it's better than just saying oh well we shouldn't have abortion rights because abortion rights activists are fat and ugly i mean it's incredibly childish like we're talking about middle school bully type bullshit here but this is matt gates this is what you get with the gop well folks it pains me to have to do this but i'm going to have to give joe rogan a little bit of credit just a teeny tiny bit but nonetheless he does get credit from this particular clip that we're about to watch and it's because for once in a very long time you actually see the light bulb go off in his head because he begins to connect the dots and he recognizes the reason why the GOP is constantly engaged in a culture war. Now, has he fallen for the culture war on numerous occasions? Yes. Does he fall for the culture war by the GOP in the same video where he kind of sees through their ruse? Yes, but nonetheless, he puts two and two together, and it's really fascinating to uh, to watch. Now, this clip is going viral in leftist circles because he addresses his leftist critics who claim that he's conservative and he pushes back against that. I don't really care too much about that. We'll address that. But really, focus on what he says about the GOP and their hyper-focus on social issues, uh, disproportionately gay marriage, which is what he talks about in this clip. What do you think that is about? Like, what is this? It's not just abortion rights, but now they're going after gay marriage too, which is so strange to me that people are talking like Marco Rubio was saying that it was like a silly thing to argue about, to, to be concerned about. And then some other uh, senator who w is a gay woman w confronted him and she was furious at it because gay marriage is not silly. It's what marriage. It's marriage from people that are homosexual. And it's for them. It's important. They, they want it. They want it. They want to affirm their love and their relationship and the fact that they're going after that now almost makes me feel like they want us to fight they want to divide us in the best way they can and that 
like that this is the best way for them to keep pulling off all the bullshit they're doing behind the scenes is to get us to fight over things like gay marriage or get us to fight over things like abortion or it's just like yes. why why yes. are you removing freedoms yes and you know and then this new thing where they're you know gun rights like trying to go after the second amendment you know you see that story that recently happened where there's a shooter in a mall can we say something about the gay marriage gun? real quick yeah please like if you're going to say that marriage is an important cultural institution to the fabric of America, right. you can't remove it to from Americans. Right. You can't go and say, this is important. This is what we do. We create a family and we love one another. And this is how right. we express our love. And then say, ah, oh, these Americans can't do that shit. It's so, so homophobic because you're saying there's something wrong with being homosexual. By saying that you are opposed to gay marriage, you're saying you're opposed to gay people. Yeah. Because if gay people are in love with each other and they want to like they want to have a celebration and mm -hmm. they want to be legally bonded and connected, and there's all sorts of benefits to that in terms of financial like, benefits. Financial like, benefits. You build it into the system. Yeah. But not only that, like if your loved one is in jail or uh, not in jail, well then is on that trial too. you can't. Or, or yeah. I was going to say in in a hospital. Oh, like, that's right. You, you have can, access to them. Yeah. You have access to them, yeah. and you're the only one that has access to them because you're their spouse. You you're the one who has power of attorney if they're you know incapacitated. Like this, like yeah. there's a lot to like affirming that relationship, yeah. and the fact that they're going after that now, like that's the kind of shit that keeps me from being a Republican. Yeah, it's only one of the kind. Of, there's a bunch of shit that keeps you from being yeah. a Republican. Yeah, but that's one of the, like people will say like, oh, you know, you're a secret conservative. I'm like, you could suck my dick. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> I'm so far away from being a Republican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because I believe in the Second Amendment and just because I support the military and just because yeah. I support police. Yeah. Like I was on welfare as a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's important. I yeah. think so, having a social safety net is it's great. crucial. Yes. It's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. We should help each other. We're yeah. supposed to be one big community. I'm a bleeding heart liberal when it comes to a lot of shit. There it is. I just also believe in discipline and hard work. Yes. That's where I fall into the more conservative side. And but that's I'm okay. Not, yeah, but I'm not a person who wants to like keep all my money <sighs> but, and not pay taxes. Like People have accused me of moving to Texas because I didn't want to pay taxes. No, I moved to Texas because I want fucking freedom. And how's that working out for you, Joe? Feel free yet in, uh, in Texas? Doesn't seem very free uh, to me. Seems like we have more rights here in Oregon than you have in Texas. For example, I can walk into a store and purchase weed for recreational purposes. You can't do that in Texas. My sister, my niece, anyone who gets pregnant, they can get an abortion in my state of Oregon. You can't do that in Texas. So if you wanted to move to a state with more freedom, Texas was a really bad decision. But nonetheless, let's get to what he says here. I, I transcribed his quote that I think is really important. He says, it's not just about abortion rights, but they're now going after gay marriage too, which is so strange to me. He goes on, the fact that they're going after that now almost makes me feel like they want us to fight. He starts to really get it, and here's where it clicks for him. And this is the best way for them to keep pulling off all the bullshit they're doing behind the scenes to get us to fight over things like gay marriage. Exactly. Exactly. This is what we've been saying for a very long time. As the world literally burns, they do nothing about climate change because you're focused on trans athletes and what bathroom trans children are using. As we have an ongoing healthcare crisis where American citizens literally die if they don't have health insurance, you're fixated on don't say gay in Florida schools.
they don't have an economic agenda that appeals to the working class because they are explicitly pro-elite. So they have to LARP as working class advocates by paying lip service to working class issues and giving shout outs to working class people, while at the same time, continuing to push for tax cuts for the rich, continue, uh, continuing to push for deregulation. And Democrats do this too. They engage in the culture war as well, to be fair, but not to the extent as the GOP does. Now, if Joe Rogan can recognize the way that they use culture war issues to distract on really big issues like gay marriage, then he also needs to extend that, extrapolate from here, see the way that they use ancillary issues as Trojan horses to distract you as well. For example, don't say gay. This is something that uh, Rogan's preferred 2024 presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis, pushed, and Joe Rogan defended him. Remember the whole parental rights and education Trojan horse? Well, what did that turn out to be? As NBC News reports, Florida's don't say gay law takes effect. Schools roll out LGBTQ restrictions. Some school officials have been accused of warning teachers not to wear rainbow articles of clothing and to remove pictures of their same-sex spouses from their desks. But Joe Rogan supported that law. He defended Ron DeSantis when that law was being uh, discussed. So the problem with Joe Rogan is that he at least is savvy enough to recognize that the GOP does indeed use the culture war to distract, but only for these in-your-face fascists, right? If it's Marjorie Green, if it's someone like that, who's really like a foaming-at-the-mouth feral conservative, and they really hate gay people and they wear it on their sleeves, he can see through that. But if it's someone like Ron DeSantis, who's a little bit more savvy and covert in the way that he uses the culture war, then Joe Rogan can't see it. I mean, his preferred candidate has been pushing CRT, banning MacBooks, citing CRT, doing nothing but culture war things. But the reason why Joe Rogan sides with him is presumably because of, uh, I don't know, his COVID policies. I'm not really sure. But the point I'm making is that if you can see through the culture war on some issues, you've got to broaden that scope, acknowledge that it's not just these really big issues like gay marriage and abortion. They use these smaller issues, smaller ancillary issues as Trojan horses to get to the bigger issues. So for example, this whole don't say gay law was a ruse, a Trojan horse to get people to bite down on homophobia. And once they bite, then you've got them. Now you can sell them why we should ban gay marriage again. This is what they do. This has always been their playbook. And if Joe Rogan recognizes that, then I think that he needs to stop falling for it. But even in this video, he falls for it because he tries to draw a false equivalence between the GOP and Democrats with regard to gun reform. And he talks about, you know, them going after the Second Amendment. And I think that he's saying this because he doesn't want to turn off his right wing followers who are listening to this conversation. But the problem is that by citing, quote, going after the Second Amendment as an issue used to divide, he's again playing into the GOP's hand because the issue of gun reform isn't divisive to Americans. You're falling for the GOP culture war thing again, Joe Rogan. The GOP is saying, oh, well, the Democrats want to take your guns. But in actuality, that's not true. Most Americans support gun reform. So this isn't a divisive issue. This isn't dividing people. Let's look at some polls here. The overwhelming majority of Americans, including Republicans, want background checks. They oppose concealed carry without a permit. They support police and family-related red flag laws. Now, when it comes to bans on high-capacity magazines and assault-style weapons, you could argue that this 
this is more divisive, seeing that a majority of Republicans oppose that, but they're out of step with independents and Democrats. Nonetheless, sure, you could say that this is still more divisive, but that still wouldn't be comparable to what the GOP is doing, because even if there are elected Democrats who support bans on high-capacity magazines and assault-style weapons, they don't talk about it as much as Republicans. They play it down because they know that it's propaganda bait for Republicans, and Republicans use that argument for wanting to ban high-capacity magazines and assault-style weapons as proof that they want to take away guns altogether. But we're not talking talking about confiscation. If you look at the gun law that was just passed, it's dog shit. It doesn't even enact federal red flag laws. It just provides states who have them with more funding. It doesn't implement universal background checks. So how can you say that this is comparable in terms of like it being divisive when most Americans, including Republicans, agree on moderate gun reform? It's not the same thing. And yes, again, I'll grant you that Democrats do engage in these distractions as well because they don't really want to do what their base wants, right? They have fossil fuel donors, hence why they won't, they won't adequately address climate change. But it's still not necessarily the same thing. But I think that he's just trying to make that point for neutrality's sake. But we need to be objective here and acknowledge what the GOP is doing. And it seems like, to his credit... Joe Rogan wants to be a queer ally, and that's really good. The problem is that in order to be an ally, it requires more from you than just recognizing, oh, the GOP is bad on these big issues. You've got to be able to pinpoint where they're trying to find weaknesses in the gay rights movement. Oh, it's parental rights and education. Maybe we can use that to enact a modern day version of don't ask, don't tell, albeit for teachers. You've got to be able to pinpoint that. And more importantly, if Joe Rogan really wanted to be a queer ally, you wouldn't support politicians like Ron DeSantis, who's going after our rights, who repopularized homophobia in the United States with regard to banning conversations about being gay. Like, we're not talking about sex education. We're talking about teachers who can't even display photographs of their same-sex spouses. That's what we're talking about, and that's what Joe Rogan can't recognize still. So even if he's starting to get it, he still has a lot of blind spots. Now he says, uh, ultimately, that's the kind of shit that keeps me from being a Republican. And the Republican Party knows that, which is why a lot of them won't just say explicitly we're against gay marriage. There's a reason why Senate Republicans are scrambling right now with the upcoming vote on marriage equality, because they don't want to show their cards, because they want to be able to appeal to most voters so they can maintain their job in the Senate. But at the same time, you know, if they betray their base of fundamentalist e evangelicals, the most loyal voting demographic for Republicans, they fuck themselves over. So what they try to do instead is push homophobia in a more insidious way. Rather than just saying, we're against marriage equality, they push it in a different way by saying, well, we don't think that gay people should be allowed to teach if they're going to be open about their sexuality. So we think that they should hide it and they sell it to you in a certain way. So that way you're still getting homophobia, but it's not as directly spoon fed for you. You know, it's 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 them trying to do the whole uh, choo choo train with the spoon. So you open your mouth willingly. That's what they're trying to do rather than force feeding it to you. But Joe Rogan doesn't really get that. Now, he addresses his critics. He says, you know, that people think he's a secret conservative. Uh, and he says this to them. You can suck my dick. Uh, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Now, I don't think that anyone is calling you a secret conservative, to be fair, Joe Rogan. I certainly haven't. I've called you an open conservative. And my argument for that is, well, I mean, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck. You side with conservatives 95 fucking percent of the time. So how could you say that it's preposterous for people to think that you are a conservative when you've already endorsed a far-right fascist 
in Ron DeSantis for 2024, when nine times out of 10, if you're talking about a culture war issue, you side with the Republican Party. Whether it's, you know, trans athletes, don't say gay, you always side with conservatives. So maybe if you don't like that perception, you can alter your views, alter your way that you talk about this. And what, you know, you're trying to be neutral so you don't piss off your Republican base. If you really want leftists to continue watching you, maybe you can extend that neutrality to the left and listen to them. Hey, maybe bring one of them on once in a while. Bring on a trans person who actually cares about trans issue rather than shitting on them relentlessly and never giving them the chance to defend themselves. Now, finally, he says, you know, people think he's conservative because he supports the military, police, and hard work. Now, I don't know what supporting the military means, but if you mean you support endless war, then that's pretty conservative. Although, from what I remember, he's been against war, so I don't really know what that means. If you support the police, that's pretty conservative, but there are a lot of, you know, bootlickers in the Democratic Party who support police as well. But he says, like, hard work makes him a conservative. No, the left also supports hard work and discipline. It's just that we don't support exploitation of one's hard work and discipline. We think that workers should get a fair wage. We think that they should own the means of production. That's what we mean. So, I mean, overall, this is interesting because Dave, uh, Dave I almost called him Dave Rubin, uh, Joe Rogan, not that far off, but, you know, not quite there yet, but Joe Rogan, He's seeing that the GOP, you know, they, they've gone too far and, and maybe they kind of overplayed their hand, not necessarily to the fault of elected Republicans, but because of the Supreme Court. But now that the right has been emboldened, they're really open about the fact that they want to ban abortion in all 50 states. They're open about the fact that they want to ban sodomy. In fact, in the free state of Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton uh, just said not too long ago, I think a couple of weeks ago, that sure, he'd defend a case in the event Texas banned uh, sodomy again. So, I mean, if you genuinely are conservative or you move to Texas because you support freedom, you've been duped. And, you know, it's nice to know that you've been duped and acknowledge that you've been duped and try to move past that. So I'm glad that he's recognizing that, credit where it's due. But again, a little bit more introspection is required, a little bit more admitting your own faults and realizing how you've been duped, I think is necessary if you genuinely want to shake off this perception of you being conservative. But I mean, it feels like you're pretty conservative based on everything that I've seen you say. You can continue to prove us wrong by calling them out when they engage in this sort of hateful things rather than joining them though, Joe. But I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Last year he claimed that he'd do better. Doesn't really seem like he's doing that much better, but if this is any indication that maybe he's trying to turn a new leaf, Good. I'll, I'll support him in his transition back to the left because I don't think that there's any monetary benefit for him. He's already a hundred millionaire, so he can say whatever he wants. But I think that he's just like naturally inclined to support reactionary views, which is why he believes in all of these dumb things that the right says, all of their culture war bullshit. But if he can move away from that and acknowledge that what they're doing is trying to divide people, to distract from their horrendous policies that they're doing behind the scenes... I think that's good. I think his viewers will be better off if he talks about that more rather than shitting on trans people nonstop. So climate change is one of those issues where it's so bleak and it's so dire that you feel like the only way you can feel any sort of comfort is to just ignore it, put it in the back of your mind. 
But with each passing year, climate change is getting more and more difficult to ignore, even if you care about it and you know we need to do something. So, for example, in 2020, in my home state of Oregon, we experienced horrific wildfires and our air quality literally became toxic for multiple days. I could smell the smoke through the windows, even if we kept them closed and rarely opened the door. It was really horrifying. Outside, the sky was orange. It looked post-apocalyptic. It was just, it was genuinely disturbing. And in 2021, we experienced a heat wave, 115 degrees in Portland, Oregon, and it literally melted the roads. More than 100 people died, making it a mass casualty event. And I took pictures of my mom's backyard and her trees looked like they were burned with a flamethrower. So this is the experience of more people everywhere, not just where I live, but around the world. Climate change is becoming impossible to ignore. And this summer, Europe is experiencing an unprecedented heat wave with temperatures in the UK surpassing 100 degrees and more than 2,000 people dying in Spain and Portugal due to extreme heat. In fact, Axios reports the deadly heat wave set or tied 359 daily high temperature records over the last week, along with 709 records for the warmest overnight low temperature. And in the past 30 days, 1,403 daily high temperature records and 2,856 records for warmest overnight low temperature have been set or tied. So climate change is here and it's impossible to ignore, but yet world leaders are choosing to ignore it because to them, short-term profits are preferable to the long-term survival of our species, the long-term habitability of our planet. And now people across the world are continuing to protest, even if it seems like World leaders don't care what they say. But in the United States, something really interesting is happening with regard to congressional staffers. 165 staffers who usually don't make political statements like this signed an open letter to Democrats demanding that they take action on climate change because they have not done enough. Now, we'll come back to this letter in a moment, but I want to talk about the 17 staffers who were arrested after they occupied Chuck Schumer's office demanding that he reopen climate negotiations in the Senate. And when it comes to the executive branch, I think that this headline line from Common Dreams says it all. California Oak Fire rages out of control as Biden mulls climate emergency. So just pause for a moment and think about this. The Biden administration for months now has been mulling a climate emergency declaration, which would give him more power to unilaterally take action against climate change. But he just can't decide what he wants to do. I mean, the entire planet is giving him a sign. It's it's on fire literally right now. And he's like, mm, I don't know if I should declare a climate emergency. Useless, just completely useless. Now, because of his inaction, people within the White House, congressional staffers, as I alluded to earlier, they're sounding the alarms because they are tired of their bosses, Democratic officials, doing nothing. So as Julia Rock and David Sirota of The Lever explains, President Joe Biden's surrender on climate policy amid the intensifying crisis has prompted his own agency experts to sound a rare public alarm about their boss's retreat, according to a letter being circulated throughout the administration and Capitol Hill. The letter to Biden and Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer provided to The Lever by a House Democratic staffer is initialed by 165 staffers at federal health and environmental agencies and at 75 congressional offices. They are demanding the president 
use more aggressive tactics to pass his long-promised climate agenda through the Senate. Quote, President Biden, you have an exigent responsibility to reduce suffering all over the world and the power and skills to do so, but time is running out, says the letter, which is now being circulated throughout the administration for more signatures. You are the President of the United States of America at a pivotal moment in the history of the world. All we ask is that you do everything in your power. We've done our part. We implore you to do yours. The letter was provided to the lever by Saul Levin, a House Democratic staffer and coordinator of the Congressional Progressive Staff Association Climate Working Group. The officials signed the letter anonymously with their initials to protect against political retribution. Another House Democratic staffer confirmed that the letter was being circulated to government officials for their signatures. Our house is on fire and mansion burned the stairs. Democratic leaders are walking away, Levin told the lever. We cannot. We must test the fire escape, find the fire extinguisher, tie some sheets together if we have to. Our lives depend on it. And I really appreciate that analogy. Our house is on fire and mansion burned at the stairs. Exactly. And Biden, who's in a position of power to do something, is just watching mansion burn the stairs, not even using his bully pulpit to attack people in his own party who sabotaged what he claims is his agenda. But what they're asking for is not even for him to call out Manchin. What they're asking for is not even a Green New Deal. What they're asking for is very, very simple. One, they want him to declare a climate emergency. This is something that a lot of people are calling on him to do. It's the bare fucking minimum. But two, they also want him to intervene to reignite negotiations in the Senate. And three, they want him to stop drilling on federal lands. That's the bare minimum. And yet, who knows if he's going to do it. So, you know, something that Saul Levin said is really important there. Our lives depend on this. And that's exactly right. People are literally dying due to extreme heat caused by climate change. And we're still pretending as if we can sit around and wait years. Democrats have a couple of months of their majority left. Perhaps they expand that. We're not necessarily sure, but we know they still have this slim majority for the next couple of months. For them to sit around and do nothing, for Biden to not use executive action to treat this as the emergency that it is, is downright criminal. So for staffers to come out and condemn their bosses, they wouldn't do something like that unless it was an emergency. And here we are. It is an emergency. So as much as we are trying to do our best to not think about climate change and push it away because it's just really difficult to think about, it's becoming increasingly difficult. Climate change is impossible to ignore. And every single human being on this planet has already been touched by climate change, but this is only the beginning. It will continue to get worse unless world leaders like Joe Biden take action. But it seems like they've already kind of chosen to not do anything. So it's difficult to not be doomer when it comes to this issue. But to give up and not fight means we're surrendering to inevitable doom. And that's something that I just can't accept morally. So we have to keep fighting even if our world, uh, our world leaders don't take this seriously. I don't know if it's because, you know, they're old and they're not going to see the worst of what climate change has to offer. I'm not necessarily sure if it's corruption that's fueling their inaction. Maybe it's all part of it. But either way, something has to be done. And for Biden to sit around and continue to mull over a climate declaration is fucking criminal.
Let's talk about Republican Congressman Glenn Thompson. So he represents Pennsylvania's 15th congressional district, and he was one of the 157 Republicans who voted against marriage equality last week. Now, it's interesting that he voted that way, considering three days later, as NBC News reports, he attended his gay son's wedding. So you vote against marriage equality, but then you celebrate your own gay son's same-sex wedding. Make it make sense to me. This doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense, but it's just, it's weird. And there's so many questions. I have a lot to say with regard to this story, but why would you vote that way if you know that your son relies on the right to same-sex marriages? Why would your son still invite you to this wedding knowing what you just did? I just, there's, there's a lot to talk about, and believe it or not, the plot thickens even further, but let's get to the article. So as NBC News reports, the gay son of Representative Glenn Thompson of Pennsylvania confirmed to NBC News on Monday that he married the love of his life on Friday and that his father was there. NBC News is not publishing the names of the grooms, neither of whom is a public figure. Thompson's press secretary, Madison Stone, also confirmed the congressman was in attendance. Quote, congressman and Mrs. Thompson were thrilled to attend and celebrate their son's marriage on Friday night as he began this new chapter in his life, Stone said in an email, adding that the Thompsons are very happy to welcome their new son-in-law into their family. In an email last week to the local newspaper, Center Daily, Stone called the Respect for Marriage Act nothing more than an election year messaging stunt for Democrats in Congress who have failed to address historic inflation and out-of-control prices at gas pumps and grocery stores. So, okay, the most puzzling aspect about this story is how they can just vote against this and then go on to pretend as if everything is copacetic. Yeah, of course, we attended our gay son's wedding and we were thrilled to welcome our new son-in-law into the family. Hang on, you, you can't, you can't just, you can't just say that. The series of events preceding that wedding make this picture very difficult to believe. So obviously what's happening is that publicly, he has to pander to the far-right base of the Republican Party, but privately, he knows that marriage equality is a no-brainer. Of course, it should be something that everyone supports, but just he can't say that publicly. Even if you have a gay son, you, you don't have the courage to come out and support marriage equality at a time when the Supreme Court is threatening to take that away. Clarence Thomas specifically cited Obergfell as a case that the court should revisit. So even if you want your son to be married, you're thankful and thrilled to welcome your new son-in-law into the family, you're okay with the Supreme Court taking that away? This is insane. Now look, even if you're a Republican and you've got to pander to these extremists in your party, you actually don't have to be a terrible person. And we know this because other Republicans with gay family members have not done the same thing. For example, Republican Senator Rob Portman, who has a gay son, is co-sponsoring the Senate version of the bill. And he released a press statement back in 2013 announcing his support for same-sex marriage, citing his son as the reason why he had a change of heart. So believe it or not, you don't have to be terrible on this issue just because you're a Republican. I mean, Rob Portman demonstrates that, but yet Glenn Thompson is too much of a coward and instead is choosing to throw his own son under the bus to pander to the GOP's far-right evangelical base. And I'm sorry, but the son has to step in and he should have said, you know what, dad, you just voted against my marriage. You don't get to come and celebrate my wedding now. Bye. You can listen to all of us celebrate on the outside, sit by the curb, but you're no longer welcome because you voted against what I'm doing right now. This is a fundamental right. And you told me, your son, to go fuck myself. 
So you don't get to participate. I mean, I disown my family members if they simply vote for Republicans. You don't have to support Democrats. I hate Democrats too. But if you affirmatively vote for a party that wants to take away my rights and recriminalize gay intimacy and enact all of these laws that fuck over my life, you don't get to celebrate my life with me. You get kicked to the curb because that's what you did to me. And this son needs to put his foot down. I know it's difficult. I know it's it's a really you know, complex and awkward conversation to have, but you've got to draw the line. You can't allow this to happen. He just voted against your marriage. Why would you let him into your wedding? It's just, it's unbelievable to me, like what people subject themselves to. Again, it's your father, so it's it's difficult to just disown him. That's no easy thing, but you cannot allow this to happen. I don't care if he's a Republican and this is his career to pander to evangelicals. If you're gay, you're in a position to influence a lawmaker. So do it. Don't invite him to your fucking weddings. You shouldn't allow him to be part of your life. Now, it's not just that he voted against marriage equality. The human rights campaign gave him a 0% score on LGBTQ plus issues, meaning that he does not ever vote affirmatively for LGBTQ plus rights. And also there's a number of bills that he could support that would improve his son's life, but he's choosing not to. So he also hasn't co-sponsored the Do Not Harm Act, which prohibits the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from letting people use so-called religious liberty as a legal justification to discriminate against queer people. Doesn't support that. He also hasn't supported the Safe Schools Improvement Act, which requires schools to adopt codes that mitigate bullying on the basis of race, but also sexual orientation and gender identity. He's also against the PrEP Access and Coverage Act, which would require all public and private insurance providers to cover HIV prevention pills. He has not co-sponsored the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, which amends the Federal Trade Commission Act to clarify that conversion therapy is an unfair or deceptive practice, and he also hasn't supported the Every Child Deserves a Family Act, which prohibits discrimination against same-sex couples when it comes to adoption. Now, that last policy that he's not supporting could directly impact his own family. I mean, do you not want grandchildren? What if your son wants to adopt children with his husband? So you're not supporting this legislation that would enable him to do that in the event the GOP takes away that right. I mean, these are things that directly impact his own family, but he's choosing to not support them because reasons. It's just, it's ridiculous. Now, we actually have a snippet of the speech that he gave. And if you didn't know the details surrounding this story, you would just assume this is an ordinary loving parent. Let's listen. Um, and so uh, we're just uh, really thankful that you're here. Actually, it goes beyond that as, as, uh, as parents. We, we love it when they're find their one true love, especially when they become a part of our families then, right? <laughs> That's what we're rooting for. We've been fortunate uh, with uh, three sons and uh, and uh, done a great job of adding to the family. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there's more to that audio, but the reason why I played that specific portion is because he's speaking directly to his new son-in-law and how happy he is that he has this individual that his son brought into the family. Now, for more details on that particular speech, uh, BuzzFeed breaks it down and they transcribe the most interesting moments. So they write, as candles flickered on the long wooden dining tables under a ceiling decorated with large string lights, guests sat with glasses of sparkling wine before them to hear speeches to toast to the two newlyweds. Wearing a black tuxedo and black bow tie, Pennsylvania Republican Representative Glenn Thompson toasted his son and new son-in-law, both of whom sat before 
before him, wearing wedding white blazers. Standing next to his wife, the member of Congress told the guests how blessed he felt to celebrate the men's marriage and to welcome a new member into his family. Thompson said any parent hopes and prays that their child stays healthy, finds their way, and ultimately finds that one true love so they can have the opportunity to experience that, someone to grow old with. What we love it when they find their one true love, especially when they become part of our families then. That's what we're rooting for, Thompson said, praising his son for his selection of a husband. But yet, three days prior, he voted against these types of marriages. It's so gross, not just because it directly affects your family, but this affects hundreds of thousands of same-sex couples. And he's just, he's, he's there, he's welcomed there after doing something egregious. I mean, it's just, it's absurd to me that this was allowed. Uh, but one of the guests there was not having it. BuzzFeed continues, I think the word should definitely get out there, the guest said of their decision for BuzzFeed News to publish it. These politicians need to be exposed for who they really are. It's baffling to me that Republicans are so hypocritical, where they say one thing publicly, but then in private, they live a completely different life. It's absurd. These people are frauds. And really what's happening is a, lar a large portion of the Republican Party, not all of them, but a large portion of them, they know that the GOP base is batshit fucking insane. They know this. We're all thinking it. They know it. They think that too. But they're just too afraid to stand up to the evangelicals in their base, even if they disagree with them, because, I mean, this is the most loyal voting demographic for the Republican Party. So if you piss off evangelicals, you could end your political career like that. So it takes courage to do the right thing, as Senator Rob Portman has done, where he doesn't just affirm, uh, affirmatively support marriage equality, but he is co-sponsoring the legislation because he actually loves his son. He actually has courage, even if I disagree with him on like 99% of the issues, he at least is a decent enough human being to not throw his own family under the bus. But here, individuals like Glenn Thompson, they vote against their own son's wedding and then attend it three days later as if there's, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there is something wrong with that. There's a problem with that. You're hypocritical, you're gross, and your son should want nothing to do with you after you just voted against his right to marry. That's despicable. He didn't lose. Says who? He just didn't lose. Do you believe the election was stolen? Yes. Do you have faith in elections now? No. You just heard from Trump supporters who still believe 18 months after January 6th that the 2020 election was stolen. I mean, some things truly never change. So that was a snippet from CNN's Donio Sullivan reporting at two competing rallies in Arizona. One rally featured Donald Trump and candidates that he endorsed, and another rally featured Mike Pence and different candidates that he endorsed. So they both endorsed competing candidates here. Donio Sullivan talked to all of them, and as you're going to see, they're all pretty insane, but predictably, the biggest loons that the GOP has to offer flocked to Trump's rally like stank on shit. Let's watch. At Trump's rally, a bonfire of conspiracy theories. Have you watched the January 6th hearings? I have. What do you think? I think they're a bunch of bullshit. Why? Well, because do you have both sides, or are you getting one side of the story? You mean like the side that attacked the Capitol? You really believe that happened? I was there. Okay. I have a lot of people that were there too. And? And saw things that it wasn't what they say it was. But there's been hundreds of Trump supporters now charged. 
Karma pled guilty. So, so, and do you think it's right for those people to have those people in jail and not get any justice in our American system? Are you kidding me? Do you think it was right that they attacked the Capitol? I don't, they didn't. That was an inside job, buddy. That conspiracy theory that those who stormed the Capitol were not Trump supporters is widespread here. Have you guys been watching the January 6th hearings at all? No. No? No, we saw it when it all went down, and then we saw like a lot of the BLM and the Antifa people in the building as well, and, and, and it's just it's just nonsense. But all. I think like 800 people now have been charged, right? Yeah. None of them are Black Lives Matter or Antifa. Yeah, that They're doesn't not mean anything. Them. That doesn't Correctly. mean anything. They have not in this been country. brought into court and for their due process because they have not been arrested. Hunter Biden hasn't been arrested. Trump has told lies about the election in that he said he didn't really lose. Do you think that all the lies about the election are damaging for American democracy? You believe he lied? Do you not? No, I do not. I don't. Why he won? But these are no longer fringe ideas. A majority of Republicans do not believe Biden legitimately won the election. I don't trust our government, first of all, period. And if you don't have fair elections, what good are they? Do you ever worry that you're wrong? Do you ever worry that... Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> do you ever worry that maybe yes. Trump has sold you a lie? Yes. <laughs> if you start researching and believe that you're the one who's wrong and that you're crazy, which I did do, thinking, yeah. okay, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I am being brainwashed, and believing something that someone's telling me, but then you go in and look the other direction and you find lies after lies after lies. So that last couple there is really interesting because for a moment, it was brief, but just for a moment, they became self-aware and thought, wait, maybe we're the brainwashed ones. I mean, in a way, I want to give her a little bit of credit, not too much, but a tiny bit of credit for being introspective. Was it for a second? Yes, but she was nonetheless introspective. And if the light pierced through the clouds for a second, maybe there's hope for her. Maybe one day she could become self-aware and permanently escape the delusions. But it's hard to say. Uh, it's, it's interesting because she talks about how, well, you know, I started to question myself, but then, uh, you know, I looked into the other side and I just found more lies, lie after lie after lie. Except the problem is that you found more people that confirmed your existing Bias. Perhaps you, you know, strayed a little bit far from your delusions and then you felt cognitive dissonance. So for purposes of mental comfort, you retreated and you sought out sources that affirmed the beliefs that you were already predisposed to have. I, I don't really know, but I mean, the fact that for a second she was like, maybe I'm brainwashed and maybe everyone else isn't brainwashed and maybe we're the ones who are in the wrong that's really interesting because I haven't seen that before. It's pretty binary in terms of what I've experienced based on, you know, different reporting. Either you are a Kool-Aid drinker and you believe the election was stolen, or once you step out of that camp, there's no going back, you know? So it's just weird that you can see the light and then you just, you, you, you go back into the cave. It's astonishing. Um, now, also, the other lady was really interesting because you could tell that she was one of the more delusional people that Doni had spoken to because she claimed that she's watching the January 6th hearings, which I don't believe, but she said that they are bullshit. Why? Well, because, uh, you know, it didn't happen. Her response, like that hubris when she spoke to Doni O'Sullivan, oh, you believe that happened, idiot? And he says, well, I was there. 
I mean, to accept what these people are saying, you literally have to deny empirical reality. You have to deny what is in front of your face. Oh, what's that? You see a bunch of raving lunatics storming the Capitol on January 6th? Well, that didn't happen, actually. Maybe it was CGI. Maybe we all imagined it. But they're just, they're wrong. But then she kind of had to backtrack a little bit and claim, okay, it happened, but I know people who say it's not really the way that it was portrayed or it didn't happen the way that it portrayed. I'm paraphrasing her, of course, but I mean, at this point, I don't think that it's uncharitable to call these people delusional and stupid because that's where we're at. You can't have a reasonable conversation with people if they exist and operate on a different plane than us. Like their reality is completely different than the reality that all of us experience. So how do you have a conversation with that person? How do you bring them back to reality? I don't think you can. So all you can do is shame them into, I guess, either changing their mind or shutting up about their stupidity. Call them stupid, make fun of them. And that might be the only hope for them. Even if it sounds crass and dickish, that's the only thing that you can do. Sometimes you have to shake people to get them to wake up. Not literally, like, physically shake them, but like metaphorically shake them and say, hey, you're being fucking stupid. And maybe that'll work. Maybe it won't work. I, I'd argue it probably won't work on most of them. But if there's any chance when you're that far gone, I think that shaming them and calling them stupid might be the only way to uh, get through to them, assuming there's any brain cells left that will uh, be able to rub together. It's not like I want to do this. I would rather have a civilized conversation with these people. I mean, when I say want to, I don't want to, but I would rather us collectively as a society be able to speak to these people on just normal human terms as functioning adults are capable of, uh, of doing. But you can't hear. You, you just, you clearly cannot. They've demonstrated they are incapable of having of having logical conversations, having reasonable conversations because they're they're delusional. So you you can't talk to these people. They're too far gone. So you can either try to shame them or just ignore them. That's it. Now, um, I love the same couple who had a moment of clarity. They tried to blame this on BLM and Antifa, but they were caught like deer in headlights when Donio Sullivan said there's been 800 arrests. Not a single one of them have been from BLM or Antifa. Now, they're going to explain that away and say, oh, well, that's because, you know, it's biased and there's a cover up. So there's always going to be some answer to a fact that's presented before them. But I mean, that should be really damning if you're trying to be objective, as that woman was trying to be objective. They both conceded that they've contemplated whether or not they were wrong at some point. So could you also not think, hmm, maybe this is a little bit weird that there's no evidence that Antifa and BLM were there and it was all Trump supporters. I mean, they don't think, that's the problem. There's no critical thinking skills there. And when there is a brief moment of self-awareness from these Trump supporters, they retreat back into their, you know, metaphorical caves. So, yeah. Now, let's get to the Penn supporters. Still delusional, but leagues, leagues, leagues more rational than Trump supporters. Do you believe the 2020 election was, was stolen? Uh, no, I don't believe the 2020 election was stolen. I believe that there are aspects of the 2020 election that were unfair. I voted for Trump twice. If uh, Mike Pence runs, I'm voting for Mike Pence. Okay, so why is that? I just think that, you know, everyone's seen the January 6th committee. Uh, he stood up for democracy that day. You know, he's like, I'm not leaving the Capitol because um, I need to be here. And he was the one that was making phone calls to the military and trying to fix the situation while Trump was crying in the dining room. But even among this crowd, there is sympathy for Trump's election lies and support for a 2024 run. You're about to see Pence speak here. Uh, Trump's not a big fan of him right now. I understand that. 
I hear that he could have not certified those results pending all the claims of the fraud. And I wish he would have done that. It doesn't matter if he was stolen or not. If the Republicans want to take back the House and take back the Senate and then uh, all, uh, eventually the White House, they need to move on. He makes a pretty interesting point that I agree with, actually. He says, even if you agree the election is stolen, you have to move on because it's hurting the party. And he's absolutely correct about that. Now, he, I'm assuming he was moved a little bit by the January 6th hearings. And the reason why he was at the Mike Pence rally was because he supports Mike Pence, because he views Mike Pence as a hero, as a sort of savior of democracy. And on one hand, I'm happy that he came ultimately to the correct conclusion that the election was not stolen. But on the opposite side of the same coin, I hate that the way that Trump supporters are reaching this conclusion is by deifying Mike Pence, by deifying ghoulish individuals like Liz Cheney. I mean, they're Republicans, so they're going to deify dipshits and ghouls. But, I mean, is there some way that we can, like, find some middle ground to where you don't deify Mike Pence as a savior of democracy because he literally did nothing? In fact, he aided and abetted Trump for... A large portion of that and he had no authority to overturn the election so even if he wanted to he couldn't do shit so is there any middle ground where you can agree that mike pence at least acknowledges reality with regard to the election i mean he's a fundamentalist christian nationalist so there are issues with reality there but either way like can we at least agree that he was correct about the election but still not a great figure well no because even if you get these trump supporters to admit that Trump lost the election, they're going to gravitate to some other horrible candidate, a fascist like Ron DeSantis, a Christo fascist like Mike Pence. You know, they're going to go to the next shitty person. But I think that there is a discernible difference between Trump supporters who are living in some alternate reality in their own heads and the people who just have odious views that I vehemently disagree with. I would much rather try to deal with those people than the Trump supporters who are completely delusional because at least the folks like that Mike Pence supporter, I feel like you can probably have a conversation about him, about our beliefs. I can tell him why his views on abortion and gay marriage and healthcare and the economy are wrong. And, you know, he would probably disagree, but at least you could have that conversation. But if you tried to have that same conversation with the Trump supporter, they'd like fucking start foaming at the mouth and, and they'd scream at you and they, they'd shit their pants. So there is a difference there. And I don't think that it's, you know, good or wise for the left to try to obscure those differences because it does exist, even if it does seem marginal to us from an ideological standpoint. But either way, if Republicans gravitate towards more sanity, even if they're still out of this world an extremist i'll take that over the trump supporters who are just they're out of their fucking minds i don't know what else to say how else to describe it i mean they're out of their fucking minds last week on the program we talked about a texas woman who is now considering leaving the state of texas due to their draconian anti-abortion laws now she was forced to carry her dead fetus inside of her for two weeks after having a miscarriage because doctors in Texas were too terrified to perform a DNC on her because they didn't want to be accused of doing an abortion on a live fetus. Now, what they put her through was they made her get ultrasound after ultrasound and finally after the third ultrasound, once they had enough evidence to shield themselves from legal culpability, they performed the DNC on her that was required when women have miscarriages. Now, it's not that the doctors would 
be safe if they were sued in that event. They'd protect themselves from going to jail, yes, but still, if the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, decided to sue that doctor and claim that they committed an abortion on a live fetus, well, they would have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to defend themselves. So even if that evidence with the ultrasounds, multiple ultrasounds was enough, still, you know, if you're sued with these lawsuits in that state that's going after doctors who do abortions, you still could be destroyed just out of legal fees alone. So the situation is really bad. Now, there's another woman in Texas who had a similar experience where she wanted to have a baby she had a miscarriage, but she couldn't get the necessary procedure because the doctors were afraid that they would be accused of doing an abortion on her. So as a result, she had to wait until she got incredibly sick to the point where she was sufficiently sick enough to where the doctors would have plausible deniability in the event they were charged with doing an abortion. So NPR has the story. It was May 10th of 2022. Elizabeth was 18 weeks pregnant. She ate a healthy breakfast, went for a walk outside and came back home. Elizabeth stood up to get some lunch. That's when she felt something shift in her uterus down low. And then this burst of water just falls out of my body. And I screamed because that's when I knew something wrong was happening. Her water had broken, launching her into what she calls a dystopian nightmare of physical, emotional, and mental anguish. James rushed home from work, that's her husband, and drove Elizabeth to nearby Woodlands Hospital, part of the Houston Methodist Hospital System. An ultrasound confirmed that she had suffered premature rupture of membranes, which affects about 3% of pregnancies. The facts were grim. At 18 weeks, the watery protective cushion of amniotic fluid was gone. There was still a fetal heartbeat, but it could stop at any moment. Among other risks, both the fetus and Elizabeth were now highly vulnerable to a uterine infection called chorioamnionitis. The OBGYN, who said she could not speak to the media, laid out two options according to Elizabeth. One option was to end the pregnancy. That's called a termination for medical reasons. The other option is called expectant management, in which Elizabeth would stay in the hospital and try to stay pregnant until 24 weeks, which is considered the beginning of viability outside the womb. Outcomes from expectant management vary greatly depending on when the waters break. Later in pregnancy, doctors can try to delay delivery to give the fetus more time to develop, while also warding off infection or other maternal complications such as hemorrhage. But when membranes rupture earlier in pregnancy, particularly before 24 weeks, the chance of a fetus surviving plummets. One reason is that amniotic fluid plays a key role in fetal lung development. For a fetus at 18 weeks, the chance of survival in that state is almost non-existent, according According to Peaceman, this is a doctor, this is probably about as close to zero as you'll ever get in medicine. Now, at that point, her and her husband had a conversation about what to do, and they really didn't have an option, right? It's the illusion of choice. You can either try to continue with this pregnancy when that poses a threat to your own life, and the chances of the fetus surviving are slim to none. And even if the fetus survives, its quality of life, if it's one day born, is going to be really horrible. So ending the pregnancy was the merciful decision in their eyes. The problem is that there was still fetal cardiac activity and Texas has a heartbeat ban in place. But there is an exception for medical emergencies. The problem is that the medical emergency exception within Texas's law is ill-defined. So is this sufficiently medical emergency because the doctors did present her with an option. I mean, you could stay in the hospital for several weeks. So what do you do? And literally their only option was for her to just wait to get more sick, wait for the infection to grow, and then she can terminate the pregnancy.
that's the only thing that she was able to do. More on this. To Elizabeth, it seemed obvious that things were deteriorating. She had cramps and was passing clots of blood. Her discharge was yellow and smelled weird, but the hospital staff told her that those weren't the right symptoms yet of a growing infection in her uterus. They told her the signs of a more severe infection would include a fever of 100.4 degrees and chills. Her discharge had to be darker and had to smell foul really bad enough to make her wretch. To Dr. Peaceman at Northwestern, it sounded like the hospital's clinicians were using the most common clinical signs of coriamnionitis as a guideline. If Elizabeth exhibited enough of them, then it would be possible to document the encroaching infection and therefore terminate the pregnancy under the law's medical emergency clause, he said. Elizabeth found this maddening. Quote, at first, I was really enraged at the hospital and administration, she says. To them, my life was not in danger enough. Their conundrum became painfully distressingly clear. Wait to get sicker or wait until the fetal heartbeat ceased. Either way, she saw nothing ahead but fear and grief, pro Longed, delayed, and amplified. Now, as time went on, her pain and discomfort got worse. The couple grew increasingly desperate. There was one moment where she was very sick and they did an ultrasound and there was still fetal cardiac activity, so they couldn't end the pregnancy there. So they began to contemplate just leaving the state because it was so bad that they were worried that it was only going to get worse and further threaten her life until she felt a huge gush of fluid from her body. And the odor was horrible, as doctors had described, which would sufficiently, you know, indicate that it was an infection. And that's when finally they were able to induce her. And then when she was induced, she just sat there and she bawled her eyes out because she wanted to have a baby. So even if she went through all of this pain, there was still that grief there. But that grief, that pain was prolonged because of Texas's draconian law. Now, I could say a lot about why this law is terrible, but I think that her words are more important. Here's what she says about it. She places the blame for the ensuing medical trauma on the Republican legislatures who passed the state's anti-abortion law, on Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who signed it, and on the inflamed political rhetoric which Elizabeth says only sees abortion as one thing, a black and white issue, when abortion has all these gray areas. When Roe v. Wade fell in June, Elizabeth's pain and anger surged up again. Quote, you know, they paint this woman into being this individual that doesn't care about her life, doesn't care about the life of the children she creates or whatever, and she just recklessly and negligently goes out and gets abortions all willy-nilly left and right, she says. Quote, abortions are sometimes needed out of an act of an emergency, out of an act of saving a woman's life, or hell, it honestly, it shouldn't even get to the point where you're having to save a woman's life. But that's where we're at in some states. Women, like Elizabeth, are forced to literally roll the dice with their life in order to qualify legally for an abortion. And even if they qualify, a doctor might not necessarily feel comfortable administering that procedure. So they force that woman to get ultrasound after ultrasound, as we learned about another woman with her uh, experience. It's just, it's so barbaric. It's, it's morally reprehensible. And, and personally, Elizabeth wouldn't get an abortion. She's pro-choice. She thinks that women should have the ability to control their own reproductive rights, but before this, she said she would never get an abortion. But I mean, in, in these instances where the life of the mother is in danger, of course, that should be necessary. So she, in principle, agrees with the pro-lifers, right? The people who don't think you should get uh, abortions as a form of contraception. But yet, because of this draconian anti-abortion law, it's hurting people who even want to have pregnancies, who want to have babies, who end up having miscarriages, unfortunately. 
And now, because of this experience, they've been traumatized. And even if they one day want to try again to have a child, now they're not going to do it in the near future. They're waiting. So we have this situation where women who want to have babies are getting miscarriages and then they're experiencing a terrible situation in the state of Texas where they can't get access to the procedure needed because doctors are afraid that they'll be charged with doing an abortion. And so these women now decide to just not have babies. This is what the pro-life movement is doing. This is what the forced birther movement is doing. These people are completely ignorant to medical procedures. People like Greg Abbott are ignorant to the facts of pregnancies. They don't know the first thing about what it means to be pregnant, what a miscarriage entails, and what removing the fetus after a woman miscarries entails. They're so ignorant. We have men dictating health decisions of women when they are completely out of their league. They have no idea, but they just superimpose their own values on everyone and force them to live based on their deluded evangelical fundamentalist beliefs it's infuriating but i think that these stories are really important and i feel inclined as an ally to share them because this isn't going to be the last story it's not the first story these stories will continue to happen it's not just women who want to get abortions who are affected by this women who have miscarriages where doctors are afraid to do a dnc and remove the dead fetus because they don't want to be charged are also part of this story as well. It's a really broad picture. It's not just black and white, as Elizabeth eloquently stated. So these stories are important and I will continue to share them. Lately, Republicans have been going out of their way to broadcast to all of us just how extreme and insane, quite frankly, they are. So congressional Republicans voted against the right to an abortion, even if the overwhelming majority of Americans think that that should indeed be a right. They also voted against same-sex marriage in the House. And also, House Republicans voted against the right to contraception by an even larger margin in the year 2022. Now, if you think it's just elected GOP officials who are extreme, the base is pretty extreme too. 25% of the GOP's base opposes interracial marriage in the year 2022. We're not talking about same-sex interracial marriages. We're not talking about same-sex marriages. We're talking about interracial marriages full stop. This means that one quarter of the GOP's base is to the right of Clarence Thomas on the issue of interracial marriage, because I'm assuming that he supports it considering he's in an interracial marriage, but one quarter of the GOP's base is saying, we actually don't support that. I don't know if they're saying this should be a state's rights issue. I don't know if they're saying there should be a federal ban, but 25%, I mean, that speaks to who this base is and why the GOP is so extreme, because this is the people who they're pandering to. Now, I'm not necessarily sure if a lot of these elected officials are faking it to make it. I don't know if many of them are just extreme themselves. I'm, I'm assuming some of them are, but it's a distinction without a difference. This party is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and they can't stop revealing how insane and unhinged they are. So there's another vote that I want to talk about. So this time, most Republicans got it right, but that shouldn't really be something that they are applauded for, given that it's kind of a common sense, no-brainer type of bill. So they voted on whether or not there should be more protections for victims of human trafficking. And looking at the tally here, yes, most of them did support this legislation. However, there were 20 holdouts, 20. Now the names on this list 
are incredibly, incredibly suspicious. As The Hill reports, Representative Matt Gates was among the 20 House Republicans who voted on Tuesday against a bill that seeks to combat human trafficking. Gates, who is currently under investigation by the Department of Justice for sex trafficking allegations involving a minor, was among the Republicans who opposed the bill that aims to bolster programs including shelters, mental health care, education, and job training for victims of human trafficking. Gates was joined by GOP representatives Brian Babin, Andy Biggs, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Ken Buck, Andrew Clyde, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andy Harris, Jody Heiss, Thomas Massey, Tom McClintock, Mary Miller, Troy Nels, Ralph Norman, Scott Perry, Chip Roy, and Van Tyler. So let's just stop for a moment and think about the names on this list. Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, former, possibly current QAnon subscribers. I mean, isn't that your whole project that you're against human trafficking? Isn't the crux of QAnon this belief that Democrats are secretly human traffickers and they're drinking baby brain fluid or some shit? I mean... If human trafficking is like your core concern, why would you vote against this? Seems like a no-brainer, no? But they voted against it. Matt Gates, who is quite literally under investigation by the Department of Justice for allegedly sex trafficking a minor, is against this as well. I mean, look, if you're innocent, I don't know why you wouldn't support this, but honestly, if you're guilty, that would give you more reasons to support this does it not because you want to kind of shake off the scent make it seem as if no i'm against human trafficking even if i'm being accused of it i'm against it but he's like mm, i don't care about the optics unbelievable now maybe it's the case that this bill is just human trafficking in name only and, and it doesn't actually sufficiently do enough and these members of congress just on principle couldn't support it because they wanted more but they didn't get what they asked for so they're holding out for a better bill Mm, no, actually, because as Matt Gates points out, he believes the legislation would serve as a backdoor loophole for illegal immigration and amnesty. Okay, so it's not necessarily that it has anything to do with sex trafficking. Sure, sure Jan. Jan. It's that it just, it preserves this like loophole that opens the door to more illegal immigration, except the 183 Republicans who supported this measure, who I'm assuming also care about illegal immigration because that's all that Republicans talk about, they didn't see that same loophole. They disagree with you. So that excuse isn't cutting it, especially if you're under investigation for alleged human trafficking of a minor. Now, what is in the bill in actuality? As The Hill explains, the bill calls for allocating more than $1.1 billion over five years to reapprove and bolster programs that were created under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000. According to the measure, local education agencies operating in a high-intensity sex trafficking area or a location with significant child labor trafficking would be prioritized for Frederick Douglass Human Trafficking Prevention Education Grants. Local education agencies that work with nonprofit organizations focus focused on human trafficking prevention education and partner with law enforcement would also be prioritized among other groups. The legislation would also reauthorize the Department of Homeland Security's Angel Watch Center, which is meant to prevent international sex tourism travel perpetrated by child sex traffickers and improve trafficking prevention education.
education for children by including parents and law enforcement in child trafficking and online grooming prevention. Additionally, it would allocate $35 million each fiscal year for housing options that would help women living with their abusers separate themselves. So the bill, to any reasonable person, seems good. It seems like it does good. But Matt Gates and 20 other Republicans couldn't even support that. I mean, at least in this case, again, most Republicans supported this, but it's one of those issues where it's like, do you think that every human being should have clean drinking water? It's kind of a no-brainer, although honestly, for Republicans, they might argue no. They might side with Nestle and thinking that clean drinking water isn't a human right, so that's probably a bad example. But I mean, there are some things that are just non-negotiable in society, but Republicans prove again and again how unreasonable they are when it comes to questions of interracial marriage, the right to contraception, and protections for victims of human trafficking. Now, 20 are saying, no, we don't support this because it'll open the door to illegal immigration. Well, I mean, that's kind of weird because you all claim that Biden has open borders. All Republicans are claiming this, even if it's demonstrably untrue. But if he already has open borders, then how could you open the door to more illegal immigration if the border is already open? I mean, that's besides the point. These Republicans are fucking monsters. And even if you're being investigated for allegedly sex trafficking a minor, you still do something like this because maybe he is guilty and he's just, he's brazen, doubling down, saying, yeah, this is okay, this should be allowed. I mean, he was the one vote against sex trafficking before. So, I mean, this shouldn't necessarily surprise us, but yeah, since we're talking about Matt Gates, I've got to share this clip where uh, Mike Pence's chief of staff on national television just crushed him. On that note, let me just say what everybody here knows. Mike Pence will never be president. <laughs> nice guy, not a leader. Mark? Well, I don't know if Mike Pence will run for president in 2024, but I don't think Matt Gates will have an impact on that. In fact, I'd be surprised if he was still voting. It's more likely he'll be in prison for child sex trafficking by 2024. And I'm actually surprised that Florida law enforcement still allows him to speak to teenage conferences like that. So I'm not too worried about Matt Gates things. That was absolutely brutal. Goddamn. Love to see it. Love to see Republicans fighting each other. And since we're on the subject of talking about Matt Gates's L's, earlier this week, we talked about how he body shamed a 19-year-old abortion rights activist. And um, it didn't go well for him, not only because she ended up ratioing him, but in his name, she managed to raise $300,000 for abortion rights funds. So that's the kind of week that Matt Gates is having. He continues to show his true colors, and he just... He doesn't care. I, I don't know what's going on with him. I don't know what's going on with the dumb fuck caucus. That is the 20 Republicans who voted against protections for human trafficking victims. But either way, this group of Republicans, perhaps more so than any other Republicans, are a scourge on not just society, but humanity itself because they're despicable. They are gross. I'm embarrassed that they're in Congress and everyone else should be as well. They need to be voted out immediately. And anyone who supports these ghouls, you're also part of the problem. If you vote for Matt Gates, if you vote for Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're part of the problem too. When people tell you that they're bad people, you should believe them. And the fact that so many GOP voters support Marjorie Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, that tells 
tells you that they are pieces of shits as well. I oftentimes don't like to voter shame, but if you support people who are openly reprehensible, openly vile and disgusting, then that says a lot about you as well. I'm sorry, it does. According to a report by the Washington Post released yesterday, the Department of Justice is now officially investigating Donald Trump. Now, this investigation should have been opened months ago, but regardless, I'm still happy that it's happening. And I am cautiously optimistic about the outcome of this investigation, because even if there is ample evidence to prove that Trump is culpable in a criminal conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government, I don't necessarily know that somebody with that much power is actually going to be brought to justice. But regardless, this is a step in the right direction. As Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, the U.S. Department of Justice is directly investigating Donald Trump's actions as part of a criminal probe into the January 6th attack on the Capitol, news welcomed by lawmakers and watchdogs who have accused the DOJ of dragging its feet despite having a strong case for prosecuting the former president. The Washington Post Post reported late Tuesday that prosecutors who are questioning witnesses before a grand jury, including two top aides to Vice President Mike Pence, have asked in recent days about conversations with Trump, his lawyers, and others in his inner circle who sought to substitute Trump allies for certified electors from some states Joe Biden won. The prosecutors have asked hours of detailed questions about meetings Trump led in December 2020 and January of 2021, his pressure campaign on Pence to overturn the election, and what instructions Trump gave his lawyers and advisors about fake electors and sending electors back to the states, the Post continued, citing unnamed people familiar with the matter. Some of the questions focused directly on the extent of Trump's involvement in the fake elector effort led by his outside lawyers, including John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. The Post also reported that the Justice Department has seized the phone records of key officials and aides in the Trump administration, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Now, to be abundantly clear here, this is positive news. This is good. I'm glad that it's happening. However, I am skeptical that this will still lead to Trump being prosecuted because of a memo that was recently released by MSNBC. So on May 25th, Attorney General Merrick Garland signed a statement where he claimed that the Justice Department must retain the bar rule and not prosecute anyone who's running for president so as to protect the perception of impartiality of the Justice Department. It's a bullshit rule, it's a made-up rule, but yet this is what Merrick Garland signed. Now, in an interview with Lester Holt on MSNBC, Merrick Garland was asked about whether or not he would consider prosecuting Donald Trump in the event the evidence bared out that he was culpable. And Merrick Garland signaled positively so that he would affirmatively prosecute Trump if that's what the evidence uh, led him to believe was necessary. Take a look. Would a criminal referral from the committee carry a lot of weight? Would it be welcomed by the Department of Justice? So I think that's a, a totally up to the committee. You know, we will have the evidence that the committee has presented and whatever evidence it gives us. I don't think that the nature of how they style, the manner in which information is provided, uh, is, is a particular significance from any legal point of view. That's not to downgrade it or to, or disparage it. It's just that that's not what uh, that's not the issue here. We have our own investigation pursuing through the principles of prosecution. You said in no uncertain terms the other day that no one is above the law. That said, um, the indictment of a former president of a perhaps candidate for president would arguably tear the country apart. Is that your concern as you make your decision down the road here? Do you have to think about things like that? 
Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone, who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. So if Donald Trump were to become a candidate for president again, that would not change your schedule or, or how you move forward or don't move forward? Uh, say again that uh, we will hold accountable anyone who was criminally responsible for attempting to interfere with the transfer, legitimate lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next. Now, keep in mind, this interview took place before we learned about the investigation by the DOJ of Donald Trump. Uh, however, this is a positive sign. The attorney general is saying that the president, former presidents, future presidents, they are not above the law. Am I still skeptical? Yes, because we rarely see public officials, elites, be prosecuted for the same crimes that elites or that peasants rather are prosecuted for. So I'll be surprised if Trump actually is prosecuted and ends up in jail, but I'm not going to hold my breath here. But still, again, this is a positive sign. So I don't want to rain on anyone's parade, but I just would advise you to be cautiously optimistic here because Trump is an elite and we don't know what's going to happen. Yes, the evidence is very, very clear as the January 6th public hearings have uh, have demonstrated. But still, it's Trump. He's an elite. I don't know what's going to happen. Now, uh, I've got to point out that Lester uh, Holt's framing there was horrible. That prosecuting a former president or a future president would tear the country apart. That right there is propaganda framing that is destructive because do you want to know, Lester, what would destroy the country if Trump actually got a second term because he's already broadcasting what he would do to destroy the country, more specifically destroy democracy. Jonathan Swan of Axios detailed Trump's radical plans for his second term, which includes purging thousands of civil servants and replacing them with Trump loyalists, which is the hallmark of authoritarian regimes. Trump is broadcasting his intent to consolidate power in a very radical way, and that should horrify everyone. It would tear the country apart. Now, on top of that, remember in 2020 how Trump responded to the Black Lives Matter protests by threatening to use the Insurrection Act to crush these protests violently using the military. Well, he's saying that if he were to be elected this time, he would definitely do that and override the will of governors. Take a look. The radical Democrat politicians at the state, local levels refuse to protect public safety and instead turns criminals loose to prey upon the innocent. Then the federal government will have no choice but to step in, not wait for the governors anymore. I was mandated, wait for the governors, but sometimes I couldn't do that. I was watching too many things happen in Minnesota. Minneapolis, what happened if we didn't send in the National Guard, they wouldn't have a city left. But you have to wait for the governors in theory. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. If a governor wants to have vast numbers of people killed and riots and all of the problems that we have, we're not going to wait any longer. We're going to pass legislation where we can immediately go in and help those people that are under siege and they have governors that don't know what they're doing. Under these circumstances, the federal government has the right, really, they have the right 
to do what they want to do, but we can't do that. We can't give that. It's a duty for us to use every tool, every authority and constitutional power at our disposal to defend the citizens of our country. If we have a weak, foolish, and stupid governor that is allowing the kind of things that you saw to take place, we have to be able to go in and we have to be able to clean out the mess, and it has to be cleaned out quickly, strongly, has to go very fast. So he's telling everyone he will clean out protests forcibly. This is chilling. This should horrify anyone who cares even a little bit about the First Amendment. Because imagine you attend an abortion rights rally and it gets a little bit too big, perhaps a little bit too rowdy. Trump can send in the military and violently break that up. And look, in theory, this could hurt Second Amendment protests as well, QAnon protests. But we all know that this isn't going to be applied neutrally. It's going to be used to crack down on political dissidents, people who are against Donald Trump. This is rank authoritarianism. But Lester Holt is concerned about him being prosecuted and whether or not that would tear apart the country. Perhaps he was playing devil's advocate. Either way, it's a stupid way to frame the question because Trump getting a second term would unquestionably tear apart the country more so than his first term. Now, would Republicans be pissed? Of course they would. They would melt down. They would screech about it. I think that Republican officials would secretly be relieved if he were prosecuted and went to jail so they wouldn't have to deal with him anymore because they have to pretend as if they support Donald Trump when in actuality we know that they don't. But yes, Republicans and Republican propagandists would be pissed. For example, this is how Charlie Kirk thinks that Republican attorney generals should react in the event Trump is indicted. This is why Republicans are ill-equipped for this moment. Republican attorney generals and governors should come out and say, if you indict Donald Trump, we will indict Hunter Biden immediately and we'll figure out the charges later. Right? Okay, good. I don't give a fuck about Hunter Biden. You can indict him. I don't care at all. In fact, he probably should be indicted. But what uh, Charlie Kirk here is saying, it's ostensibly stupid because if you ask people, would that be a proper exchange, if, if you will? You know, if we trade Hunter Biden for Donald Trump, if we're bargaining that way, then uh, sure, most people would be okay with that. But what he's saying is actually pretty savvy because if Attorney General signal that they would retaliate if Trump is indicted and they would indict Hunter Biden, well, that sends a message to Joe Biden. And he might exert pressure on Merrick Garland to back away if, you know, it's going to be turned against his son as well. Now, I'd argue that it's going to be turned against his son anyway when Republicans regain control. So this is really not, this shouldn't have any bearing uh, on whether or not Trump is indicted. But this is what presidents have done. Remember when Obama said that he wants to move forward and not prosecute George W. Bush's administration for war crimes? Well, why did he do that? Because he did war crimes himself. So if you prosecute one president, odds are they could prosecute you or a future president can prosecute you. So presidents have been afraid to create this standard, create this precedent because they're cowards and they're worried about their own asses. So this is why uh, I'm really skeptical about whether or not this is going to lead to Trump being indicted and prosecuted. I just don't know. There's just, there's so many things working in his favor that it leads me to believe that it would take a miracle for him to get indicted and land up in, end up in jail. But we'll see. That doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not going to support this investigation because it absolutely should have happened months ago and i hope that it leads to him in jail but as i stated i'm not gonna hold my breath but i'm crossing my fingers
An absolutely devastating new poll conducted by CNN between July 22nd and 24th finds that 75% of Democratic Party voters want someone other than Joe Biden to run for president in 2024. To say that this is bad for him would be an understatement. This is shockingly, shockingly devastating. But yet, he's still going to do it. Presumably, he hasn't really announced or even signaled that he's going to step down and only serve one term, as he did before he was elected. And recently, when he was asked about this, his response was, read the polls, Jack. And he pointed to a poll where it showed that Democratic Party voters would support him if he were the nominee again. But he misses the point that they don't want him to be the nominee. Now, it's so bad for Biden currently that even members of his own party are publicly distancing themselves from him. So, for example, progressive lawmaker Cori Bush was asked whether or not she would support Biden in 2024. Look at her response. Do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? Yeah, I, you know, uh, that's an easy question. It's not going to take long. Do you want to see Joe I, Biden? I don't run? want to answer that question because we have not. That's not. Yeah, I don't want to answer that question. OK, um, I mean, he's the president. And he has the right to to run for a second term. Absolutely. That's, but, right but I don't want to. Wanna, I don't yeah. I don't want. I'd rather you not do that. Okay, answer so you got like two minutes to be in the car. Yeah, I know. Right. I got to get to the. Well, thanks very much. Ouch. Now, Democratic Party loyalists were clutching their pearls over this because they viewed it as just being disloyal to the party. And look, she could have been a lot more meaner, right? She was clearly thinking no, but she didn't say it because she didn't want to be accused of being divisive. But yet they still accused her of being divisive. So I wish that she would have just stated her opinion there. But regardless, when the president is that unpopular, this is called political strategy, not associating yourself with the president who the party itself doesn't even like. And I love how all of this, you know, um, screeching about Cori Bush here and her response. Well, guess what? Even corporate Democrats are distancing themselves from Joe Biden. Look at the way that Tim Ryan responded when asked if he would support Biden in 2024 himself. Do you support the president in his reelection bid? Um working on my own election and that's all I'm focused on right now. We've got a little under four months here in Ohio and we're running a great campaign. We're up in the polls and working really hard. So I'm just going to focus on that and then we can chat about that uh, after I win and, and get in the United States Senate. I'll be happy to comment. Yeah. So Democrats of all stripes are now seeing that the ship is sinking and they're getting out on lifeboats right now before it brings them down as well. It's smart. I disagree with Tim Ryan, but Politically, this is the correct strategy. Why would you go out of your way to associate yourself with a president who 75% of the party does not identify with, does not like, does not want him to run for president? I mean, usually when you have an incumbent president who can run for a second term, the party is with them unless there are really extreme circumstances. And we're in that point where these are really extreme circumstances. Now, when it comes to who Democrats want, there's really no clear alternative in their view. So a University of New Hampshire poll finds that Pete Buttigieg is statistically tied with Joe Biden, which again speaks to how low his favorables are within his own party for an incumbent to be tied statistically with someone else. Now, Warren's at 10%. Gavin Newsom, 10%, Amy Klobuchar, 9%, Sanders, 8%, Kamala Harris, 6%, which this is the vice president, so that is very, very bad for her. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 5%, Hillary Clinton, 3%, LOL, Stacey Abrams, 3%, Cory Booker, 2%, Whitmer, 1%, Chris Murphy, 1%, and J.B. Pritzker uh, at 0%.
So Democratic Party voters don't really know who they would flock to. They just know they all agree on one thing that they don't want it to be Biden. And I feel them. Look, even if it's the case that a progressive wouldn't succeed in a 2024 primary, I think that anyone besides Biden would be preferable because if you go back to my coverage of the 2020 Democratic Party primary elections, I repeatedly stated that Biden was one of the worst, if not the worst, presidential contender, excluding maybe Michael Bloomberg, who was buying his way into relevance. But I mean, it's just with Joe Biden, there isn't just the corporatism and the corruption that that makes him bad, but it's just being genuinely out of touch, being too old to identify with the struggles of this generation, not taking climate change seriously. And even if I think that other corporate Democrats like Pete Buttigieg wouldn't take climate change as seriously, he at least has a self-interest in doing something because he is young enough to see climate change get exponentially worse, whereas Joe Biden is pretty old. So frankly, he's not going to see the worst of what climate change has to offer. And aside from climate change, he hasn't done enough to satisfy the base. Now, you can point to Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. I think there'd probably be some other villain in their place in the event they chose to play ball with Biden. But there are a number of reasons why you can't just play Manchin and Cinema because Biden can do a plethora of things using his pen with executive action. For example, he can cancel student debt. He doesn't want to cancel all of it. He won't even cancel $50,000, but where's the 10,000 that he promised to cancel? We were told months ago that we'd hear something in weeks and now student loan payments are set to resume and we're still just wondering what's going to happen with our lives. He hasn't descheduled cannabis. He stopped taking COVID-19 seriously. His response to Roe v. Wade being overturned has been horrific and laughable. He won't use his bully pulpit to call out people in his own party like Manchin and Cinema when they obstruct his purported agenda. And on top of that, his administration's stance towards immigration has been cruel and inhumane much like his predecessor. For example, he's not capitalizing on the one good thing that the Supreme Court did in their overall horrific last session. As Politico reports, Biden goes silent after SCOTUS gives him power to nix Trump immigration policy. And they explain, last month, the Supreme Court cleared the way for the Biden administration to unwind a Trump-era policy that has forced thousands of asylum seekers to wait in Mexico, often in dangerous settings, for their U.S. court proceedings. The White House and Department of Homeland Security have been mum on their plans following the Supreme Court's ruling. Immigration advocates asking about next steps have been met with a similar silence. In that void, a question has emerged. What exactly is the holdup? The bottom line is they've been saying they want to restore a meaningful asylum system. Well, now is their chance to show that they mean it, said Julie Rabinovitz, deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. Their hands are no longer tied, and as long as they're no longer tied, they should make good on that promise. The silence from the administration is the latest tension point between the president and immigration advocates frustrated by President Joe Biden's failure to deliver on promises he made as president and during his campaign. Advocates continue to press Biden on his pledges to reverse restrictive border policies, including remain in Mexico, imposed by his predecessor. While pieces of Biden's immigration agenda have been blocked by the courts, they argue the president has also ducked such tough issues for political expediency. And they'd be correct about that. So virtually... Every constituency that Biden has is disappointed in him. This is why most people in his party, the overwhelming majority of Democratic Party voters, do not want him to run in 2024. And for him to go against their wishes to run despite what they want, he's putting ego above the country because he knows that if the base is this unenthusiastic about him, 
he's going to lose to Trump or DeSantis. And that will put the country in a very terrible position. So if he genuinely cares about American democracy, the best thing that he should do or would do in that scenario would be to announce that he's not seeking a second term and allow the Democratic Party to have a robust primary where we can select somebody else. But I don't think that he's going to do this because this is a selfish individual. And as we've seen, Democratic Party elites will cling to power for dear life and refuse to give it up. I mean, Dianne Feinstein currently, there are reports that she's suffering from dementia, forgetting names of staffers. It's just this is the situation. These elites don't care about us. They cling to power for self-aggrandizement for themselves, and they don't care about the country. They don't care about what their own party wants, and it's just despicable. This is a tweet from Senator Rick Scott of Florida from yesterday. It's beautiful, and I'm sorry about the cursing, and let me say something beautiful to make it up to you. I was honored to join the USO today and make care packages for our brave military members in gratitude, in gratitude of their sacrifice and service to our nation. And there's a beautiful picture. I wish you could see it. He's standing with a little package. Did you get the package? It's like, I think it has M&Ms in it and some cookies. And some moist towelettes. I, I, I don't even know, honestly, I don't even know what to say. I haven't come down here 10, 15 years. I'm used to the hypocrisy. Christina Keene will tell you from BFW. They, she sat in an office with Mitch McConnell and a war veteran from Kentucky, and he looked that man in the eyes and he said, We'll get it done. And he lied to him. Because Mitch McConnell yesterday flipped. I'm used to the lies. I'm used to the hypocrisy. Senator Pat Toomey won't take a meeting with the veterans groups. Sends out his chief of staff. I'm used to the cowardice. I've been here a long time. Senate's where accountability goes to die. These people don't care. They're never losing their jobs. They're never losing their health care. Pat Toomey didn't lose his job. He's walking away. God knows what kind of pot of gold he's stepping into to lobby this government to shit on more people. I'm used to all of it, but I am not used to the cruelty. That was a snippet from Jon Stewart's speech outside of the Capitol following news that GOP senators blocked a bill to expand health care for veterans. It's just unnecessarily cruel, but this is what we've come to expect from the modern GOP. I know that Jon Stewart says that this isn't necessarily his expectation, but this is my expectation. The cruelty, the barbarity is the point of the GOP because that's how extreme they are. But this is what they blocked. As The Guardian explains, the measure called the Honoring Our Pact Act would make it easier for veterans to access military care related to exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam and toxins from pits used to burn military waste in Iraq and Afghanistan. A version of the bill passed the Senate 84 to 14 earlier this year, but was sent back to the House for some technical corrections. It easily passed there. But on Wednesday, 25 Republican senators who previously supported the measure to 
declined to move it forward. John Cornyn, a Texas Republican, told CNN Republicans did not back the measure because Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, was blocking votes on amendments Republicans wanted. Cornyn also said Republicans wanted to negotiate more in order to cut out some of the mandatory spending contained in the bill. In other words, they're blocking this bill because they're mad at Chuck Schumer because he's not giving them what they want. And they're using sick veterans who they sent to war as bargaining chips. That is outrageous. But I'm not surprised at all by this. At all. You know, these Republicans, they will vote for every single war. They will vote for every single military expansion. No questions asked. No concerns about the deficit. Nothing. But when it comes to helping sick veterans, they deny that responsibility. So John Stewart is going to touch on this point in the next clip. These people thought they could finally breathe. You think their struggles end because the PACT Act passes? All it means is they don't have to decide between their cancer drugs and their house. Their struggle continues. This bill does a lot more than just give us health care. Gives them health care, gives them benefits, lets them live. Keeps veterans from going homeless, keeps veterans from becoming addicts, keeps veterans from committing suicide. Senator Toomey's not going to hear that because he won't sit down with this man. Because he is a fucking coward. You hear me? A coward. And like I say, I'm used to it. But this type of cruelty on those that we say we hold up as our most valued Americans? Then what are we? Pat Toomey stood up there, Patriot Pat Toomey, excuse me, I'm sorry. I want to give him his propers. I want to make sure that I give him his propers. Patriot Pat Toomey stood on the floor and said, this is a slush fund. They're going to use $400 billion to spend on whatever they want. That's nonsense. I call bullshit. This isn't a slush fund. You know what's a slush fund? The OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, $60 billion, $70 billion every year on top of $500 billion, $600 billion, $700 billion of a defense budget. That's a slush fund, unaccountable, no guardrails. Did Pat Toomey stand up and say, this is irresponsible, the guardrails? No, not one of them did. They vote for it year after year after year. You don't support the troops, you support the war machine. That's all you care about. Boy, they haven't they haven't met a war they won't sign up for and they haven't met a veteran they won't screw over. What the fuck are we? And now they're going to go away. Uh, Pat, Pat Toomey says, uh, oh, I've got veterans groups behind me. I call bullshit. These are the veterans groups. VFW, American Legion, IAVA, Wounded Warriors, DAV, and vets, they're all here. This is the veterans community, Senator. They don't stand behind you. In fact, you won't let them stand in front of you. Cowards, all of them. Cowards, all of them. And now they say, well, this will get done. 
maybe on the uh, after we get back from our summer recess, maybe during the lame duck, because they're on Senate time. Do you understand? You live around here. Senate time is ridiculous. These motherfuckers live to 200. They're tortoises. They live forever and they never lose their jobs and they never lose their benefits and they never lose all those things. Well, they're not on Senate time. They're on human time, cancer time. Don't you have families? Don't you have people who are deciding how to live their last moments? I know some of them. They've been down here advocating with us. They spent their remaining time advocating so that other soldiers didn't have to face the indignities and the depravity and the desperation that they faced. And none of them will hear it. And none of them care. Except to tweet. Boy, they'll tweet it. Can't wait to see what they come up with on Veterans Day, on Memorial Day. Well, this is the reality of it. Really powerful speech here. Now, my favorite part was when he said, you don't support the troops, you support the war machine. That is precisely correct. Because they're happy to use troops for propaganda purposes to cultivate support for their wars. But when it comes time to actually responsibly protect these veterans who survived war, take care of them, they're nowhere to be found. It's truly despicable. Truly despicable. Now, I'm glad that Jon Stewart made that point because nobody is really making this point. We talk about the deficit all the time or we hear about the deficit being talked about in mainstream media. How can we support healthcare expansions? How can we support, you know, reducing the cost of prescription drugs when we have this out of control deficit and inflation? But when it comes to the military budget, it gets expanded all the time and there's just never any concerns about that. And that is infuriating to me. So I'm glad that he's making this point where everyone can see it. And Jon Stewart is really good at raising the salience of particular issues because nobody was paying attention to this particular issue until he sounded the alarm. I just wish, my only request really from John is that he would expand what he advocates for. You know, talk about trans rights, talk about the lack of universal healthcare in this country, which leads to tens of thousands of people dying every single year. These are things that he alone, I think, could raise the salience of. I think that he's actually that influential as a political figure. Now, I want to show you another clip. I've got two more for you. The first is of Jon Stewart going on Newsmax. So he's going on every platform to get out the message, and he really shows you how it's done. Because the right-wing pundit on Newsmax tried to run interference for Republican senators, but Jon Stewart shot that shit down brilliantly. Let's watch. Um, but I, I did want to point out, just to push back a little bit on this, so the Republicans, when you you say what you said, they do not support veterans. Uh, the Republicans push back saying there is unrelated spending uh, within this. Uh, it's not. It's just not true. What they're saying is they don't like that it's mandatory as opposed to discretionary. There isn't unrelated spending to it. They're saying there could be if there wasn't oversight. But that's what the Senate's job is. The bill itself is incredibly detailed and prescriptive about what it's for. It's about treating and preventing the uh, different conditions that veterans are coming home with, including cancers and chronic bronchiolitis and all these other issues from their exposures in Iraq and Afghanistan. And to push back on what they're saying, they're saying, what if this creates a slush fund, right? 
So are you familiar with something called the OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund? Fairly, yes. So every year, $50 billion, $60 billion, $70 billion is added to what's called the OCO on top of the $600 billion, $700 billion, $800 billion that goes to the Defense Department. That OCO fund is actually a slush fund. $60 to $70 billion every year. No oversight, no guardrails. And every one of those Republicans that voted against health care for veterans voted for the slush fund for the war. They don't support the troops. They support the war machine. And that's got to stop. The value in the U.S. military isn't in the toys. It's not in the hardware. It's not in the tanks. It's in the men and women. And until they start supporting them in the manner that they purport to online, yep. they are hypocrites. It, it is. That was brilliance. I wanted to show that to you because that is what you're supposed to do if you go on right-wing news shows, right? There's this debate on the left about whether or not it's acceptable for people who were formerly on the left, Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore, to go on Fox News. And the answer is, it's fine if you go on Fox News, but only if you forcefully push back and get out the left message. If you just go on that program and you recite what they want you to say, if you be their useful idiot, that can be harmful. But what John Stewart did here uh, by going on a far right news outlet is he rebutted their points. He didn't play ball with them. That clip shows you that he was getting his message across uh, and not allowing them to do propaganda at the behest of GOP senators. Now, one more clip that I wanna show you is from a veteran on MSNBC who had a particular message for Republican Senator Pat Toomey. Republicans love the soldier, but they don't love the veteran. And uh, that's, the, that's the bottom line. And again, politics and game playing at the course of human life is unacceptable. And no matter what the issue is in this country, Americans don't have to put up with it. I don't care if you're far right or far left. This is not about politics right now. This is about human life. So those who are gonna t tweet and text me and email me and say, I'm this and I'm that, I am a human being. I'm a human being before I am a Republican or a Democrat. I am a human being before I'm an American. And when human beings suffer, and you do not get involved and watch that suffering, you're as guilty as a party who is pushing out that suffering. And enough is enough. And to watch Lou Alvarez and Ray Pfeiffer and others, you know, Andrew, I've been to 191 funerals. Soon I'll be going to my own. And the fact that we have to continue to fight for veterans or first responders is proof that the Congress and the Senate in this country do not get it. And the American people should be fed up like John Stewart, John Field, and all of the BSOs. Pat Toomey said yesterday that the BSOs wanted him to block this bill. Every BSO organization was at that press conference today and nobody stood with Pat Toomey. He's a liar. His wife should divorce him, his dog should bite him, and he should not get health care when he leaves and retires because he's a piece of shit. That was incredible. So look, I don't have much commentary to add here. I think that what Jon Stewart and these veterans are doing is really important. They're really creating a blueprint or perhaps a potential blueprint, assuming this is success successful. But I think that he will have a degree of success here because before he has shamed Republicans sufficiently enough to get them to buckle. And I think that he could possibly do this again because by him going to the Capitol, having this speech, powerful speech, you know, you're getting mainstream media coverage. And this is how it's done. It's sad that the only way to accomplish anything, even incremental policies like this policy, which is incrementalist, 
you know, it's sad that you have to shame politicians into doing the right thing, but this is where we're at in our so-called democracy, where you can't simply get what you want by voting for politicians and crossing your fingers that they're going to do the right thing. They're corrupt, they're sellouts, and they're cruel. So in order to get them to do your bidding even a little bit, you have to shame them relentlessly. So if we as Americans learn from this and we have solidarity and we join together to shame politicians on other issues and we're overwhelming in our condemnation, perhaps we could be successful as well. Let's talk about Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang is an individual who is unquestionably nice. I talked to him before he uh, came on the podcast. But the problem is that when it comes to politics, he's just lost. At best, he's ideologically inconsistent. At worst, his ideology is just incoherent. So as you might have heard about, he formed this new party called the Forward Party. Now, before I talk about it, let me hear how he describes it, courtesy of MSNBC, where they read an op-ed from The Washington Post written by Andrew Yang along with his associates. A new centrist group is gambling that millions of Americans are fed up with this country's two-party system. They're announcing the creation of a third political party to be called Forward. In a Washington Post op-ed this evening, the party's founders, David Jolly, Christine Todd Whitman, and Andrew Yang write the following. The two major parties have hollowed out the sensible center of our political system, even though that is where most voters want to see the move. A new party must stake out the space in between. Okay, so the goal is to form this new party that is going to be between Republicans and Democrats. So the question is, how exactly is this an alternative? Because it's not. It's just more of the same. Because consider this. Republicans are on the far right. Democrats are on the center right. So if you're in between the far right and the center right, you're just right wing. So if you're trying to capture this uh, group of voters who are disillusioned with both political parties, I understand the need to fill that void, but you're going about it in the completely wrong way because people aren't upset with Democrats and Republicans because there aren't enough people between Democrats and Republicans. They're upset with Democrats and Republicans because neither party represents the working class. Both parties are neoliberal. That means that they propose nothing but private solutions to public problems. Healthcare system broken, let's just throw more money at the private system that we currently have. Uh, education system uh, not going too well. Funding disproportionately hurts black Americans since we base that on zip codes. And, you know, it seems like our education system is broken. Let's just throw more money at charter schools. This is the neoliberal ethos. So, you know, this is what both parties represent. So if you're trying to find some center point between Republicans and Democrats, you are literally offering nothing new. It's more of the same, albeit in a new package, right? If you actually want to offer voters an alternative, it would be to the left of the Democratic Party. That would truly be centrist because center is the center point between voters on the left and the right. And both parties are not an accurate representation of the electorate. But voters support these parties overwhelmingly because that's the only two options. So is the goal to just have another party so voters can flock to that in hopes that they won't recognize that they're getting more of the same? Or... Are we going to prioritize quality over quantity and actually offer working class voters a meaningful alternative? That's what I want, but that's not, uh, not what Andrew Yang is representing. And even with his own description of it being like 
between Democrats and Republicans, when you read who's part of this party, that even doesn't quite fit the bill because they seem like a Republican light party. So as Reuters reports, dozens of former Republican and Democratic officials announced on Wednesday a new national political third party to appeal to millions of voters they say are dismayed with what they see as America's dysfunctional two-party system. The new party called Forward, and whose creation was first reported by Reuters, will initially be co-chaired by former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey. They hope the party will become a viable alternative to the Republican and Democratic parties that dominate U.S. politics, founding members told Reuters. The new party is being formed by a merger of three political groups that have emerged in recent years as a reaction to America's increasingly polarized and gridlocked political system. The leaders cited a Gallup poll last year showing a record two-thirds of Americans believe a third party is needed. The merger involves the Renew America movement formed in 2021 by dozens of former officials in the Republican administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. The Forward Party, founded by Yang, who left the Democratic Party in 2021 and became an independent, and the Serve America Movement, a group of Democrats, Republicans, and independents, whose executive director is former Republican Congressman David Jolly. The party, which is centrist, has no specific policies yet. It will say, at its Thursday launch, how we will solve the big issues facing America. Not left, not right, forward. So based on what we're seeing, this party is disproportionately comprised of Republicans, including individuals from George W. Bush's administration and Donald Trump's administrations. A war criminal and another war criminal, but also somebody who tried to stage a coup. I mean, this just seems like another republican light party that is going to serve the interests of corporate America. So my question is, what is the point? If you're trying to pick up disillusioned voters, do you honestly think that you're going to win them over by just saying, hey, here's the same thing, albeit in a new package? I mean, maybe some voters will fall for it. Maybe they're banking on voters being too stupid to realize that they're getting the same pro-capitalist, neoliberal policies. But overall, this is not going to be conducive to meaningful change. Now, do we need a third party? Yes, we need a fourth party, a fifth party, a sixth party. But they're putting the cart before the horse here, because if you genuinely want a third party that's viable, you can't just say, here's our new party. You could turn this organization first into a movement to actually secure electoral reform, because that's how you get a third party that's actually electorally viable. It's called Duverger's Law. In a winner-take-all majoritarian system like we have, it's always going to come down to two parties. So in the best-case scenario, the forward party, assuming it's able to accumulate power, wouldn't necessarily be a third option, probably. It would likely be absorbed by Democrats or, more likely, Republicans. So that's the best case scenario if you don't support electoral reform first. I desperately want more options. But really, it's not just about quantity. Again, this is about quality. I guess I just don't understand the point of this. Again, if you turn this into an organization to campaign for electoral reform, perhaps at the state level, where you introduce reforms in each state, create model legislation that would reform our system, make it more proportional. Uh, you know, I would love to not have a presidential system. I think shifting to a parliamentary system would be much, much better. They're more effective. They're just overall more functional. I, I think that's probably not possible, but like within the scope of what's possible in the United States, you could push for proportional representation. You could push for ranked choice voting or better yet, STV, standard transferable vote. I'm not going to get into what that is, but it's essentially ranked choice voting, but much more proportional, much more representative. But I mean, they're just 
going to jump into electoral politics without trying to reform the system that makes it really difficult for third parties to thrive. And that doesn't make sense. And even their premise doesn't make sense. So going back to that, let's look at their platform. You'll find a couple of policies, but mostly vague platitudes. Free people revitalize a culture that celebrates difference and individual choice, rejects hate, and removes barriers so that each of us can rise to our full potential. Sounds lovely. Thriving communities reinvigorate a fair, flourishing economy and open society where everyone can live a good life and is safe in the places where we learn, work, and live. Vibrant democracy reform our republic to give Americans more choices in elections, more confidence in government that works and more say in our future. And the only policies that they list are ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, and independent redistricting committees. Now, that last one, independent redistricting uh, commissions, that's what the Democratic Party proposed. So there's already overlap with the existing two parties, and there's already a platitude over policies party in the Democratic Party. So again, I ask, what is the point of this party? And if you truly have this vision, what policies will you introduce to make this vision a reality. It's about policies, not vibes. It's about policies, not platitudes. But for Andrew Yang, I mean, I don't want to say this because it's pretty mean and I'm being a little bit, um, I guess, uncharitable here, but it feels like this is a grift to bolster his own profile. So in the event he wants to run for president, he can do that using the forward party. And I, I mean, he knows probably that He's not going to win in a third party, but you can boost your public profile, you know, sell more books, launch podcasts, or, you know, attract donors for whatever venture you choose to pursue, whether that's, you know, some sort of capitalist venture or organizational venture. I mean, this just seems like a joke. I'm sorry, but it is. It's a fucking joke. If you actually want to offer voters an alternative, that party must, it must be anti-capitalist and vehemently pro-working class. We have two parties that already represent corporate interests. So if you can construct a party exclusively to the benefit of working class Americans, pro-unionization, pro-worker rights, anti-capitalist, explicitly so, then you'll form an alternative. But even if you form that alternative, even if this party is good, you have to get it to a place where it's viable in our electoral system. And right now, we're not there. So electoral reform should be priority number one for any third party advocate. But they're, again, putting the cart before the horse and they're putting the platitudes before the policies, which I really don't like. So overall, um, I don't see the point and it just feels like this is doomed to fail, but maybe they'll prove me wrong. Either way, I mean, we've seen third parties come and go. And again, if you want them to become viable, you need electoral reform. I keep saying this, and third-party advocates don't like to listen, but it's true. Fight for electoral reform first, and then third parties will finally be viable. But even when we have viable third parties, that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't be susceptible to the same corruption that is inherent within our system that made the Democratic Party corrupt when they once were a more working-class-friendly uh, party. So this is like you have to take a holistic approach if you genuinely want to revitalize the American political system. But I genuinely don't know if there's any hope if it could be reformed or revitalized. So all of this just seems really pointless to me, but I don't want to rain on their parade if it makes them happy. Great. But I really don't want to see this party take advantage of well-intentioned people who are dissatisfied with the two-party system. If this party is just going to offer them more of the same. I think that's really cruel. And um yeah, so we'll continue to follow the forward party. It just seems dumb. Sorry.
I'll be honest, I hesitated on whether or not I wanted to talk about the deal struck between Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, because by the time you see this video, the bill could already be dead. By the time you see this video, there could be additional provisions that make it even worse. By the time you see this video, um, you know, uh, a lot could change. And we've been here before. I've talked about so many deals, potential deals that Joe Manchin has struck with Democrats only to find that weeks later he comes up with some excuse or he got offended by Democrats and he decided to tank it unilaterally. So to talk about this is a little bit irritating to me, but I had to do it because this tacit assumption in the media that we're seeing that Manchin is now all of a sudden some sort of a hero. I can't let that stand. So what's in the bill? Well, ultimately, this is a mixed bag if you're a leftist. It has undeniably good provisions within this bill, but there are a lot of poison pills that might make it more harmful than anything. But first of all, let's get to the good in this bill. And these are surprising details here that Manchin at least temporarily agreed to. As HuffPost explains, the proposal would raise $740 billion by instituting a 15% minimum corporate tax rate, beefing up the Internal Revenue Service's enforcement of tax laws on the ultra-wealthy, narrowing the carried interest loophole which allows hedge fund managers and other wealthy investors to pay lower taxes and requiring Medicare to negotiate the prices of some drugs directly Directly with manufacturers, leveraging the social insurance program's massive buying power to wring savings from drug makers. It then spends a historic $369 billion on energy security and climate change, which Democrats say will be enough to cut carbon emissions in the United States by 40% before 2030 and puts $64 billion toward extending subsidies for the Affordable Care Act for three years. The remaining $300 billion will go toward reducing the deficit, a priority for Manchin. The new proposal would also cap a Medicare patient out-of-pocket expenses at $2,000 per year. Now, keep in mind, that's the more rosy portrayal of this legislation. These are very, very incrementalist steps towards addressing climate change, towards addressing, you know, the pharmaceutical price gouging issue in this country. But nonetheless, these are undoubtedly good things. But even if we were to get this and Manchin held strong, there's an almost overwhelming certainty that Kirsten Cinema is going to be the one that tanks it because there's one provision that has previously been a non-starter for her. As the prospects Alex Salmon argues, there's absolutely no way Cinema is on board with ending the carried interest loophole, barring some profound change in her personality on the level of divine intervention. So this just seems like a nice diary entry from Manchin about things he likes. Yeah. So, Cinema, at the time that I record this video, she has not commented on whether or not she'd support this. Her staffers are saying that she wants to read into it, and we still don't know if corporate Democrats in the House, such as, you know, Josh Gothheimer, for example, are going to support this. So, it seems, it seems up in the air, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that Manchin himself could step away. We just, we don't know. There's so many uncertainties that it seems like this is doomed to fail. So basically, I'll believe it when I see it. But assuming this was able to pass, let's talk about the poison pills because these are very, very harmful provisions. Now, this bill is being labeled as a bill that would, you know, expand our investments in clean, green, renewable technology, solar, wind, hydro. 
But overall, media probably won't report on these provisions. So the Center for Biological Diversity, they went through the bill and they found two really, really bad provisions in particular. As Common Dreams reports, those sections 50264 and 50265 mandate oil and gas leasing in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska and bar the federal government from authorizing new wind or solar energy development, quote, unless an onshore oil and gas lease sale has been held during the one 120-day period ending on the date of the issuance of the right-of-way for wind or solar. Holy shit. CBD stressed that Section 50265 would require the Interior Department to offer at least 2 million acres of public lands and 60 million acres of offshore waters for oil and gas leasing each year for a decade as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. Brett Hartle, CBD's Government Affairs Director, warned Thursday that those poison pills risk canceling out the upside of the measure, including the legislation's tens of billions of dollars and proposed green energy investments. So let's be really clear about what this is. This is not Joe Manchin having a sudden change of heart. This is Joe Manchin finally agreeing to the terms of a climate change bill because it sufficiently delivers for his donors in the fossil fuel industry. What a joke. This shows you that our government is fundamentally incapable of taking climate change seriously because when they finally choose to invest in climate change, and mitigating the damage that it will cause, well, they have to simultaneously do more damage because that's how corrupt our public officials are. It's genuinely disturbing. And now, to have this shitty bill and Joe Manchin being paraded by media as a fucking hero is absurd to me. And to make matters worse, Joe Manchin is now bemoaning how he was ostracized and victimized for killing Build Back Better now that people view him as a hero. So perhaps they'll be more sympathetic towards his victim complex. I mean, what a fucking joke. But don't worry, Manchin. If this passes, even if this bill is destructive, we don't know if it's more destructive overall or more good overall. We don't necessarily know. It'll take time for, you know, watchdogs to assess the damage that this bill will cause and whether or not, you know, it's a wash or if it's more harm than good. But Manchin's career will be rehabilitated and he'll be praised as some sort of a hero for all of eternity because he finally agreed to do something. And that's assuming this gets passed. Again, cinema might tank it. Now, I think that whether or not this bill should be supported by the left requires a lot of nuance, right? The question that we have to ask ourselves, that we're unfortunately forced to ask ourselves is, will this bill yield more good than harm? Are we in the situation where this is the best that we can get before Democrats potentially lose power in the fall? Or is this potentially going to be counterproductive because we get climate legislation an investment in clean technology, and then they'll think that, oh, well, we did it, we're done. So they'll use this as an excuse to not take further action when it comes to climate change, which will unquestionably be necessary. So overall, what's the takeaway? And I think the answer is, I don't know. Overall, I'm leaning towards, fuck this bill. It's just, there's too many poison pills and to do more environmental damage, even if you're investing in clean, green technology, to do that much more drilling, it shows you they're not taking this seriously and it could do more harm than good. But I do want to share Ryan Grimm's perspective because even if he acknowledges the poison pills with this legislation, he has a pretty complex and detailed approach to this as to why this might be more good than harm. So let's let's get his take here. 
He writes, climate hawks will criticize the bill for its energy neutral approach. The kinds of subsidies made available for clean energy are supposed to be available to projects that clean up dirty energy too. And cleaning coal is seen by many as a ruse actively deployed to stall the transition to clean renewable energy. However, looking at the reality of our energy infrastructure, fossil fuels are going to be with us for a very long time. Reducing and or sequestering their carbon emissions during the transition is essential. It's the unfortunate reality we've been dealt. If this money can sparks some exponential technological development in that direction, we'll all be better off. Secondly, if all that fails and the carbon tech stuff is all fluff, subsidizing it was still worth the payoff to Manchin to get the clean energy money because there was no other way at this point. If Republicans take Congress next term, there's no telling when the window might open again. And third, it seems like Manchin extracted concessions that could make permitting future fossil fuel projects easier. That's bad. But those are fights to be had in the future against the win today. So I think that Ryan Grimm raises some really good points, but overall, you know, there's a lot of ifs. A line from, you know, um, Ryan Grimm's writing stood out to me. If this money can spark some exponential technological uh, development in that direction, we'll all be better off. But that's a big if. So at this point in time, this ultimately is something that he's agreeing to because it benefits his corporate donors. He would not agree to this bill if it didn't sufficiently benefit his corporate donors. Keep that in mind. So I'm against this. I'll just be honest, I, I don't support this, but I will wait and I'll be open-minded about what environmental groups have to say about this. We haven't heard from all of them, but I want to hear their assessments, their assessments because they, they know more than all of us. But at the same time, trying to determine whether or not this bill is good could be moot because cinema could come in and crush it or Manchin could crush it himself. So that's where we're at in the United States, where the best that we can get so far a historic investment in clean, green, renewable technology means we have to also further destroy the planet. Now, if you put aside the climate considerations, then the other good things like, you know, negotiating some pharmaceutical prices, um, expanding Obamacare subsidies. I guess you could, you know, consider that in your process as well. It's all incremental, but still it's objectively good, better than what we've got. But, I mean, <laughs> this isn't what is going to save the planet, unfortunately. So, I just overall feel really exasperated about this and feel like this whole video is probably a waste of time because this bill is going to die. So, that's where I'm at. You know, you could hear a little bit of ambivalence, uncertainty, and overall hesitation in my voice. And that's because, you know, some, some things are complex and require nuance. But ultimately, I think there's just, there's so many uncertainties, too many variables to where I can't support this. And if I were a progressive senator, I personally would vote against this, but I wouldn't fault individuals like Bernie Sanders for voting for this affirmative, affirmatively. Because, you know, if this is the only chance to invest in some renewables, you know, you wouldn't be insane to take it despite the flaws and poison pills. But still, it's just a bitter pill to swallow. And I don't know genuinely if this does more harm than good so that's where i'm at i just i don't know so i'm gonna have to side against it want more visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on youtube means tv and facebook you can also find audio versions of the show on spotify apple podcasts soundcloud iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode.
There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.